everything's done. I'm just rough. You have no pain anywhere in your body. centric Mike <laughs> we got some other time zones for you next time gotta get my world clock up thank you for joining us live everyone and thanks if you're just listening if you're not live we've been uh, had a little hiatus hasn't done a, haven't been on our weekly schedule because Abby has been flying around on some army helicopters landed on some navy ships wild stuff there but uh, head over to the Empire Files YouTube and podcast channel to get the little wild story about what we've been doing, why we haven't been here, but we are very happy to be back with a wonderful person other than Abby. <laughs> Welcome back to Dosed, everybody. I'm so pleased to be joined on this show by one of my dear friends who I've known for many years, Connor Habib. He's one of the most interesting people I know. As Connor put it himself, He's the only person who's ever won awards for writing, teaching, and porn. This trajectory is pretty unique, gaining fame as a gay adult performer who moved to the field of academia first in evolutionary biology, then into the world of spirituality and the occult. I always love listening to his podcast, Against Everything. Against everyone, I thought it was. Against everything with everyone. Connor Habib. Everyone and everything. That's what it should be called. Where he explores those topics and so much more. But now he's added another fascinating path as a published fiction writer with his awesome new book, Hawk Mountain, hitting shelves just a couple weeks ago. In the words of horror master Clive Barker, quote, Connor Habib's debut novel is a bleak, dark adrenaline rush. You guys, it doesn't get better than an endorsement from the mastermind behind Candyman and Hellraiser to know this is some good shit. Right now, Connor actually is in Portland, just wrapped his book tour in the U.S., and I'm so happy he had time to join me to talk about his life, his book, and so much more. Thank you so much for coming on, on Dosed, Connor Habib. Hey, hi, Mike. Hi, Abby. Hi. Hello. Hey. Hi. <laughs> Connor, um, you know, first I just want to kind of throw some praise on you, heap some praise on you, rather. Uh, what I love about you as a person is how wonderfully grounding you are 
and how every time I see you and talk to you, there's like no superficiality, no pretense. <laughs> it's all very real shit. Like when I was on your podcast last, the entire conversation was just about why we do this kind of work instead of the work itself. And I just really appreciated that kind of like unrehearsed, raw, emotional release. And I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much. And I loved I loved having that conversation with you because I know that you don't get asked that ever. It's like you get pulled into the sort of political detail you know, um, abyss all the time. And, you know, what, but when some maybe take a step back and say, why, why do we do this? You know, what's important about this? And just having that conversation could put you back in touch with everything that matters, you know, in the right way. Cause we can also get lost in the details of it, you know, even if we're doing good work and if, and, and that can, that can be bad work then like that can turn bad just, you know? Yeah. That's very true. Um, we're going to get into your book a lot in a little bit, but I kind of want to start at the beginning of our story because you're so multifaceted. You've lived many lives. They've all intertwined, led you to the point you are right now. But I met you 10 years ago, I guess, virtually. We had our first virtual meeting when I interviewed you on Breaking the Set. You were a famous porn star, Connor. Um <laughs> I I, uh, I interviewed you about, I think it was like, if I remember correctly, it was like defunding sexual education. And I guess there was just a, just another initiative to just fucking defund sex ed like there always is. Um, some sort of crazy, you know, religious, bigoted, like, attempt to just completely decontextualize <laughs> our sexuality from, from anything. And I think it was the taboos surrounding the porn industry. And I thought that you were just like really interesting. I mean, you kind of defied this cartoonish notion of what I, I think a lot of people think a porn star is and can be. Um, I guess let's start there. Like someone who worked inside the industry for so long, what would you say some of the biggest misconceptions are about that industry? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and things have changed a lot different, you know, they're, they're a lot different than when I was making porn because I was doing studio porn, which was, you know, just sort of show up and walk into a structure that was already set up for me, producers, camera people, all that. And now, of course, like a huge group of people are, you know, have uh, no pun intended, sees the means of production and they are, um, you know, making their own their own porn and distributing it through, you know, I mean, there are still big tech platforms, um, but they're distributing it that way. Um, so when we talk about misconceptions, though, a lot of them remain, which is that people just sort of fall, like they, they're, they're pulled into it or brainwashed into it or something like that. Although that's getting harder to sustain that myth as more and more people are, you know, deciding to make porn themselves. Um, and I think also, you know, another, Another myth is somehow that this representation is uniquely bad, um, that it's bad for people to watch. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any serious or good research on that. I mean, there's phony and constantly debunked research on, um, you know, sort of brain science in quotes. Um, there's an idea that somehow criminalizing sex work is uh, better for sex workers, but that's been thoroughly debunked by many groups, including Amnesty International. Um, and there's been, you know, plenty of, uh, you know, the just sort of ideological stuff about how it objectifies people and so forth. But I don't really think that has any ground either. I mean, what does that even mean? And the thing that I always say when people say 
porn objectifies women. I'm, you know, that's a rallying cry. I say, you know, ask anybody who says that to define porn objectifies or women, and they'll give you shallow definitions of every word in that sentence. So, um, I mean, I could go into that much, much more, but that's just to start with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always funny. Like porn is so stigmatized, even though I think a lot of people watch porn. Um, and it's like, it's so stigmatized that you even hear like, like, oh, it's like, it, oh, I caught my husband watching porn and like, and then I, and then I walked out. It's like, what? Or like just in movies and shit. It's just like, oh my God, like catching someone in the act of watching pornography. It's just like, it's just so bizarre. It's like, isn't that kind of like <laughs> human nature? And also maybe right. just like have a conversation with them if it's like really that upsetting. Like, hey, like, let's talk about sex and you know, our needs and all that. It's just, it's, it is very funny and it's just like this unspoken thing, but it's painted as such like a disgusting, horrific thing that like, it's an abomination, even though it's just like, come on, like even Ted Cruz was like liking that fucking porn shit on Twitter. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, (laughs) um, yeah, I don't know if you watched my movies or not, but whatever. Um, but I, but I do think like uh, <laughs> I have not. I, I, that, I maybe that Zodiac Killer spoof I did. No, um, but I, but I do think uh, <laughs> no, I do think that like you, you know, to your point, it's always decontextualized um, from history. Um, you know, like from culture, what, like how long have people been enjoying and looking at sexual imagery? Well, for a really long time. Um, why would we think it's bad? Like how did it become sort of quarantined or, you know, um, severed from the rest of human experience? Um, what forms of it, you know, might we be able to talk about in a way and say like, does this form of it have a negative impact? Does this form not? Why do we always separate porn out as a special case when we're talking about um, the dangers of tech? Like, actually, you know, could all the problems that we level at porn right now, including the distribution, the multi-availability, you know, the sort of gravity of it just relate to tech in the way that everything that we talk about tech does? You know, why do we single that out? Is there, uh, you know, and I mean, the answer to all this is like, you know, so like when I set up these rhetorical questions, like, should we look at the Council of Trenton, how the church, you know, (laughs) how the the Catholic and Protestant church engineered this completely phony idea about sexual imagery to show who had the most commitment to God, you know, like, of course, so, but people don't look into that. And so there's been a very successful long campaign about um, you know, brainwashing people uh, when it comes to, you know, whether or not sexual imagery is healthy, worthwhile, interesting, historical, so on and so forth. So what you're saying is there was like cave drawings of like pornography back in the, you know, <laughs> well, thousands right. of years BC. Now, I mean, let's get this out of the way because you, you brought this up and I do want to touch more on this kind of sexual repression and how it plays out and manifests in really disturbing ways. Um, but you you are a very outspoken advocate for sex work. Um, mm-hmm. You are also a critic of kind of a tendency on the left that makes the argument that all sex work, even though I, I think a lot of people do advocate that, you know, rights are needed and benefits are needed and... Um, you know, like in terms of like uh, people who are selling, you know, sex and stuff like that, like they deserve the autonomy and um, to run their own business, such and, you know, et cetera. But I think the argument on the left that I hear a lot that I want you to touch upon is like, 
especially female sex work, is rooted in the exploitation of women in a patriarchal society. So mm-hmm. can you elaborate on your analysis of that line? Of yeah, thinking? I mean, the leftist line, usually, if leftists do indeed go so far as to even defend sex workers' rights at all, <laughs> which is <laughs> up in the air for lots of them, um, you know, is that, you know, sex work represents... Uh, often represents like a, a case sort of limit for how far socialism should go. Um, and the idea is like, well, sure, like all work is, you know, like ba- basically the idea is like sex work is especially bad work. Um, and that, it, you know, it's it's not consensual or something and therefore represents rape. But of course, like we know that no work, it, it, it no work is consensual. The problem is not whether or not work is consensual. It's that the wage late or the content of the work is consent or not consent. It's that the wage labor relationship is completely non-consensual in the kind of capitalism or as, you know, Jody Dean and David Graeber have denoted, you know, neo-feudalism, um, that the wage labor relationship is completely non-consensual and how People decide to negotiate, um, strategize, and survive around a wage-labor relationship that demands that people work or die um, is anybody's game. You know, like that we that we negotiate that in different ways, and we have different strategies. And a lot of sex workers um, are doing work that actually erodes that wage-labor relationship, that actually attacks and chips away at that. Uh, terrible non-consensual bind and trap that people are in because there aren't bosses, there aren't offices, um, there is not a kind of timed uh, workplace in the same way. There's not, you know, the obedience to a certain kind of production. And in fact, you know, a lot of sex work represents a much more honest exchange of services for money um, in the sense that um, someone presents a need and they pay for the need directly. It's delivered directly um, by the service provider. So I think all these things actually show interesting paths and strategies to destroy capitalism and neo-feudalism. But instead of looking at those as interesting or worthwhile, it's like, oh, no, we need to rescue these people from uh, the very thing that we could learn from and actually enhance the left by paying attention to, you know? Yeah. And Connor, there's clearly like a pretty big spectrum that would fall under sex work, you know, a a lot of which would fall under what what you're describing and probably some that there's like darker side too. like, you know, I think on the spectrum of sex work is like just if you have like an OnlyFans account and you're just like posting nudes and then you have like lots of subscribers and then like probably the other end of the spectrum is, you know, immigrant women who are like trafficked, sometimes underage to like massage parlors or like where you do have hours and a boss and stuff like that. And so clearly there's like some nuance to it. But I think what you're saying is that like uh, it's all under kind of like the same system that will make it you know bad no matter what yeah i mean i think to the extent that sex work begins to look more like other forms of work the worse it gets but the more it actually just looks like sex work the better it usually is (laughs) (laughs) and what's fascinating is how all of this plays out in our society like we're so deeply sexually repressed and i would argue one of the most sexually repressed you know so-called like progressive nation (laughs) nations like you Mm -hmm. know in terms of like western ideals and stuff like that especially because of the absurd hypersexualization um that is sold to us commercially so like 
it, it is so fascinating because it really speaks to why does this work on a psychological level? The only reason why it works in terms of the incessant commercialization of sex in general is the repression of sex, right? The oppression of women. I mean, it's so fascinating. It's like, it's like, it's so taboo, but at the same time, it's sold to us that everywhere you fucking look, every single billboard, every single advertisement, and it's all about sex, sex, sex. And at the same time, on the policy level, you have this crazy manifestation of the sexual repression and oppression (laughs) turning into things like, you know, a 50 year old constitutionally protected right being overturned (laughs) with abortion. And then you have like gay marriage and potentially the right to contraception next on the chopping block. (laughs) So it's quite a surreal dichotomy that we're living through today, Connor. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you're talking about is like, for me, it's always been interesting, this phrase sex sells, like if only that were true, um, it's not sex that sells, it's frustrated arousal that sells. Like no one puts a giant billboard up, which is like dick in pussy and next to it says <laughs> Burger King. You know what I mean? It's always like, no, not yet, but it's always like someone in like a bikini, you know what I mean? And like you divert the arousal into the product or the mm. consumer good. And like, so you know, so then, of course, porn becomes this place where all sexual frustration is sunk into a certain kind of product, um, a certain kind of image and entertainment. Um, and even what ends up being, you know, so for some people, their primary site of, you know, se- of their sexual, you know, release function, all that kind of stuff. Um, but because sex is so non-normalized, it's so easy to manipulate. And any ta- any chance or opportunity that we have to unrepress, to normalize sex, to make these things sort of optional engagements where we're not sort of automatically reflexively aroused, but rather um, sex becomes part of our normal lives, like conversation, uh, then we lose, you know, any any chance for that, we, you know, lose that opportunity because... Uh, there's so much social stigma. So the, you know, the people who are running things and have been running things for a long time, whether it's pre-capitalism or, or in capitalism, where you have, uh, you know, churches or you have corporations or states, you know, like corporations are just as terrible as the Catholic church. I mean, why can I not type the word fuck on my phone without autocorrect is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> um, you know, and and why can there be no sexual imagery on any tech platforms? Like all the conversations about free speech and like, should Alex Jones be able to be on Twitter or whatever? It's like, what the fuck? Like, I haven't. No one's able to put their dick on Twitter or like, you Wait, know, really? I thought you on could. Facebook. Well, <laughs> you could with like a certain warning, right? But you oh, couldn't okay. do it on Facebook. Right. You couldn't do it on YouTube. You can't say, you know what I mean? It's like this has been forever. You can't put ads for sexual services on any of these sites, right? So, like, that's been complete repression that everybody just sort of accepts and goes along with. Oh, well, you can't show that on the internet. You know, you certainly couldn't show it on TV because of the fucking, you know, FCC, right? So it's like all of that you know, is in place. There's been a massive cooperation between economics, politics, and culture to, uh, you know, stop any organizing that might happen around sexual freedom. And so then you have an abortion ban, um, which basically ties deeply into the SESTA-FOSTA bill, which is, you know, was to ban all uh, instances of you know, sexual solicitation on the internet, because in the U.S., sexual solicitation 
is conflated with human trafficking. And so then, you know, if, if you do that on your site, then the government can seize your site, whether you're Twitter or back page. And so I think it's like, and now people are like, well, the government's going to be able to like go into our apps and our pregnancy planning apps and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was all set up, you know, some precedent, at least some aspects of the precedent were set up in the way that sex workers were, you know, oppressed. And I always say that like sex workers are the canary in the coal mine. Whatever the government does to sex workers and sexual imagery is what they want to do to the rest of workers and the rest of imagery. Yeah, you know, it's uh, funny that um, the rating system for movies, I don't know if you'd know this fact, Connor, but, um, you know, like for something to be PG, PG PG-13R, it's like this, you know, I guess, unknown group of people that like do these ratings. But um, we've had Adam Conover on this show, but his show, Adam Ruins Everything, they go into this fact that um, if a movie has any kind of sexual content, I mean, not talking about nudity, but just like, you know, simulated sex under the covers or something, it is like way, way, way more likely to get a higher rating. Whereas the, so the bar is extremely low to what gets you a rated R or definitely a PG-13 rating mm. for any kind of sexual content. But violence, it's an extremely like high bar for what makes you bump up in like a rating level. So it's like this weird contradiction of our society where there's this like wanting to shield people from not even just sex, but like nudity, like nudity and sex where then like graphic violence is considered just like so normal. Um, you know, we were like looking up like good animated films to like watch with our toddler and like the number one that came up was a bug's life. And then within like the first five minutes, <laughs> this like really angry, like grasshopper, like punches his like friend in the face and it's like i'm gonna kill you and i was like this is the best toddler movie he's saying i'm gonna kill you it's like it's not like i would have been like happy if they like had sex instead but like well, if they were, both, at least like, if they made it it would have made more sense like yeah it was just so it's so weird so i don't know it's just like this weird <laughs> it's this weird contradiction i think with like the violence is is very good but sex and nudity is like very very bad yeah and i mean and notice also the ways in which that's utilized or filters down in so many ways like you can show your butt on instagram right but like you can't turn around right, right. completely bonkers like so that also like reinforces um certain kinds of gender coding um gender expression coding well like you know because everybody has a butt it's okay but because we've se separated sexes, you know, um, you know, and, and conflated that with gender, gender expression, like you can't actually show genitals because that would not be OK, because somehow that's arousing. I mean, you know, you know, spoiler alert, I think butts are hot, too. So I don't know. <laughs> but I think like, I mean, I, th I think it's, you know, the way that that the way that that filters down into all different ways is also really fucked. And right. Like the violence thing is just that's always been bonkers to me. I mean, I'm not. I wouldn't advocate for um, censoring violence either, but I do think like if we're going to look at, you know, what's reinforcing social norms, I mean, that's a pretty good point to make that violence is always okay in representation and sex is very rarely okay. Right. No, it's totally true. I mean, look at the hysteria around trans people, um, uh, just basically having to say people's pronouns now it's like this huge reactionary backlash look at what happened when elliot page made you know it was a pretty amazing mm -hmm. moment actually for a trans mm -hmm. man to post a uh, post top surgery um bathing suit photo and it just absolutely fucking broke the brains of so many of these people like jordan peterson i mean they they could not handle it um, and i really think it shows you like 
even though we think that we've progressed and that, you know, it's really inspiring to see so many tens of millions of people who are younger, especially embracing this notion that, you know, sexuality is a spectrum and that it doesn't have to fit into this neatly conformed box and that you can embrace kind of the duality of like a lot of these feelings that you have it, it it completely runs contrary to a lot of like the conformists the people who are the jordan petersons of the world who want these kind of social hierarchies mm-hmm. and institutions to be in place forever connor and um and and it's really sad because you are seeing this crazy ba- backlash that i fear where it is going where now like you said it, it you know the canary in the cold mine in terms of sex workers and it all feeds into this notion of like trafficking you know sex trafficking and it all like now you see like anyone who's bringing a child to like a drag brunch right. or mm-hmm. a our library reading hour is now like grooming your kids to be gay and it's all about gr- you're a groomer um you're a pedo it's like it, it's just getting really scary really quickly but it does seem like it's leading to a very bad place and um i, I don't really i mean we're seeing it reflective in policy too yeah i mean it, it it's all interesting you know i mean obviously the stakes are higher than it just being interesting but it's all interesting in the sense that, you know, I mean, I grew up in the, you know, I grew up in small town Pennsylvania in the 80s and 90s and like, you know, gay people were just dying and mm-hmm. like Colin Powell and, you know, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, yeah, everyone's fave. Like, they're all just like, who cares? You know, like not, you know, even Colin Powell's like, well, if it's just, if it's just gay people, like NBD, you know, and, um, and you were dying for, you know, people are dying of AIDS. So, for what they other people were saying they should be punished for by god they they should be you know they should die and i think like the comparison for me and also like to speak about being gay you just get your ass kicked Mm -hmm. or you get killed or whatever so like while some of this shit like alarms me like having been inside the way (laughs) things were i'm like okay well um i don't know i mean i'm not saying it's not bad or it's not but i, I can't I, just to say and as someone who's a sex worker as well like in those kinds of situations you learn strategies and you mm. learn tactics and you learn ways to live and deal with these kinds of situations and I was, and and so i'm not saying that it's not bad but does it freak me out more than the world i was freaked out by that i was growing up in i mean <laughs> it just puts me back in that place where I'm like, well, you just deal. Like you figure out how to do it and you get it done. And I don't, I mean, as you point out constantly um, in all your work, both you guys like relying on the political realm to be there for you and your problems. I mean, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Like the government does not give a fuck about anybody. Um, You know, I'm not saying that there aren't any local or smaller scale politicians that, you know, that don't, that care about people, but like, um, the idea that we would look towards the state or corporations to do anything, you know, in our benefit, that's actually not even what they're designed to do at any point anymore. Um, and so I, you know, I'm much more in a sort of mutual aid framework because that's the framework essentially that I grew up in being gay, being Syrian, mm-hmm. and then later being a sex worker where you find people who will cooperate with you and your desires and what you need and what you want. And if sometimes that has to take place in the shadows or 
away from the official sponsoring structures, then you do it. Um, I'm not saying that's hopeful, but um, that's reality. I, I mean, that, yeah, and that's... I don't. I just don't immerse in the, the the freak out about things. If you know, um, but I can still help. I can still do things that assist and lend a hand to people without you know, freaking out about it with like, I know a lot of people are right now. You know? No, you're right. I mean, I just don't want anyone to live in the shadows. And even though I understand this reactionary wave, because it comes in cycles, and we've seen this right. before time and again, and, and so I get it. Um, it is just disturbing because of the conflation, I think, with a lot of these things. And, you know, people are just, I think that people are just becoming extremely like reptile brained, in general that I want to get into later in, in terms of the themes of your book. But it, it, it does seem like it's getting kind of like activated more and more and, um, and heightened to a point where I'm not, I don't like that. And I, and even though you did grow up in a really, I mean, God being gay in the fuck, I, I know a lot of my friends who are gay today who are my age or older were in the closet far beyond high school. <laughs> like, right, right, I mean, yeah. either their parents would have disowned them or they just weren't comfortable. I mean, it's, it definitely was not an okay time to be living in. And it really was only relatively recently that this became even like a normalized thing in our country. So it, it's, I'm, I guess I'm speaking for people places, who are like, yeah, no, of course. Like I'm trying, it's only like a couple like cities really that it's <laughs> even like, you can really be who you want to be. But I guess it's just, I don't want people who are, becoming who they are unapologetically so to like go back in the shadows or go back to that kind of state of fear but yeah i guess right. that's the the scary thing is that these things come in like you know there's like a whiplash you know like there's mm -hmm. progress and then there's backlash and now we're in one of those backlash moments where you know it's probably more dangerous to be trans than it has in a, in a little while because there's all the hysteria about yeah. groomers and and all this all this crazy stuff and you know, it really kind of in a way ties back into what we were talking about with like this weird uh, repression of sexuality overall and the like taboo of sex in our society. Because like, you know, like looking at the Roe v. Wade decision, like, uh, of course, the right wing makes it about this is about the life of the, the fetus, the life of the child, because we believe life begins at conception. But it's really what I think what's let, not talked about as much is it's really about like women should not be having sex. Like that's really their belief. Or, and, if, and if you have sex, there's going to be a consequence. And that consequence is you have to have a baby because that's what sex is for. And that's why it's on the chopping block along with sodomy gay marriage um contraception uh, why trans issues it's, it's all about like you shouldn't be having deviant sex you shouldn't be having sex for pleasure you shouldn't be doing anything that's not with mm -hmm. for the purpose of even when you're in a married relationship you're just having sex to have a kid like you shouldn't even yep. be enjoying having sex when you're married like that's really what the view that uh that these people have so it's it, it all kind of flows together in a really I guess, weird and scary way because these people have a lot of power and influence in our society. Oh, yeah. And then Connor's point about just corporations not giving a fuck about you. That's what makes it so like especially disgusting and cynical today when you have this fake tokenism and superficial adoption of like progressivism, identity politics, um, LGBTQ issues. You know, it's just like very gross to see like Burger King. It's like, you know, like fucking McDonald's. Yeah. Like, it's just bizarre. And I think it actually just aids and abets that reactionary mentality because it's like, what the fuck is happening here? It's like a very weird Orwellian moment that we're in where corporations who are just hyper capitalists who are crushing unions all over the place are like, no, 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 we're fucking woke as hell. 
Um, we have gay, like we have gay drone operators blowing up weddings. It's just like, what on earth is going on here? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everything you guys are saying, like, it's like, it can come together in the sense of like, since there's backlash or whatever, and yes, it does happen a lot of times, we should view these moments as opportunities to see where we went wrong with our tactics and our strategies. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that, um, representational politics, um, it, you know, we we relied too heavily on that. We relied too heavily on visibility through gay marriage, which, as many people have pointed out, was probably post-traumatic stress disorder tactic born from people seeing everybody die of AIDS. We have um, too many, you know, too much investment in, you know, identity, um, identity politics in certain forms. So, like, the idea that, like, we would go into the shadows, it's like, that does suck, but the way we are in the light was shadowy enough. Like, maybe the idea is, okay, this backlash is coming, can we look at how we, you know, cooperated and collaborated with each other generally as a culture and as a political sort of agreement to come to this bad place? Can we mm -hmm. stand back again and reassess? You know, one of the big sort of eye-openers of moving to Ireland was I was always against gay marriage as a sort of principle in the sense that like the courts had decided and you can look at what happens when you know courts especially supreme courts decide on things the courts decided that this was okay or was good in a certain way or that it was allowable or that everybody had this right but I just always thought like well, you know, like gay people should, you know, straight people should have gay rights, like not vice versa. Like why are gay people trying to like emulate the forms of monogamy and state sanctioned sponsored relationships would tie into a capitalist economy completely? Um, why are we trying to emulate that instead of offering up what we have as our culture to straight people? Um, but, uh, and then, you know, courts went along with a certain thing and it became very sort of normalizing and cultural assimilation and all this kind of stuff. And I was always sort of against gay marriage from a kind of queer critique when queer mm -hmm. actually meant something other than an aesthetic choice. But now that I am moved to Ireland where gay marriage is legal, it became legal in a completely different way. And I thought, wow, all marriage equality is not equal. Marriage equality in Ireland happened because it was a countrywide vote, which is much more possible in a, in a small country where gay men and women and others, um, knocked on their neighbors' doors and said, Hey, um, this is what, uh, I think about, you know, this is, these are my desires. These are the people that I care about. This is who I am. And so a countrywide conversation turned into a countrywide vote. Um, where people actually supported one another and the deep psychic um, lastingness and camaraderie that occurs when that sort of political change happens, when political change emerges from cultural conversations is very different than when certain people fight for certain kinds of rights under a blanket term and then ask the courts to sort of secure the right for them. So, I mean, I think all these things sort of <laughs> blend together, but I just brought all that up to say, like, we have a ton of tactics and strategies available to us that we didn't use or deploy and instead relied on kind of faith in certain systems to preserve and defend our rights or, or even create our rights out of the, you know, system of oppression they had already sort of created. And like, maybe it's time to stop fucking doing that. You know, no, it's so true. It reminds me of like the whole argument about trans people in the military. It's just like, wait, how oh, yeah. is this like this weird <laughs> totally. co-optation co of like a very like, you know, defanging 
radical movements and revolutionary tendencies and just be like, no, 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 like it's all about us being able to join the imperialist war machine. It's like, wait, what the fuck? Like, how did this? <laughs> yeah, it was very much for the, the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. So you could be openly gay in the military. But at the same time, it was like, that was an easy way to get out of the fucking military. If you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I'm gay. You got to kick me out. Sorry. <laughs> no, I know. And I, I just think it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, the fear or the stated fear was that like gay people in the military would erode, um, what, you know, and gay people in the military would erode the ability to like fight and combat the enemy and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know, we would think that like Arabs were cute or something like that (laughs) or like, and, (laughs) and that like gay marriage would erode the institution of marriage and like, you know, the way the state intervenes to support certain kinds of relationships to give special benefits to people. It's like, I like that's all true and we should have fucking aimed for that. You know, like instead of <laughs> instead of like trying to um like get access to marriage in the military so that that wasn't true, we should have utilized that and made it abs- made their worst fears true. You know, right. like we should have joined the mm-hmm. army then by in in droves if we if we were going to join at all and like and the fighting turned it into you a know, big orgy. Like, Sorry, we're over here fucking. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna totally pivot this conversation now to another. <laughs> oh, I don't want to, but we have no. To. I know we have to because there's so much more to get to. I could talk about this all day, but I mean, you mentioned that you were, you are Syrian. You're also half Irish. You've lived in Ireland for quite a while. We we, had, we were lucky enough to visit you last year. Um, amazingly, you weren't raised in religion which is, I think it's like more rare for people mm-hmm. growing up in this country. And interestingly enough, your exploration into spirituality kind of came out of your studies of evolutionary biology, which mm-hmm. might seem completely antithetical to mm-hmm. some people, especially those on the left. So I guess um, bridge that gap for us between science and spirituality. Yeah, so so what you're referring to there is how I basically discovered different methods of science through studying science um, with particularly with Lynn Margulies who co-created the Gaia theory with James Lovelock and that, that, that the earth is a self-regulating entity that acts a bit like an organism, um, which is basically a proven fact now, but it, under the term biogeochemistry um, that, you know, she created a different s- system or uh, theory of evolution. She basically popularized and proved that all cells with organelles and um, are symbiotic mergers between different types of bacteria and, uh, and sometimes protists. So like there was all this, like, you know, she did a lot of work and, you know, she led me to studying other f- methods and theories of science of which there are many, there's not just one scientific method or, you know, idea of how it works. Um, and that's just a total, total sham. Like nobody, <laughs> it's just not historically like viable. Um, but because of that, I ended up, uh, uh, you know, well, I'd always had sort of spiritual interest, but like you said, I didn't grow up with religion. So I wasn't violated by religion or religious principles um, by my parents sort of forcing it down on down my throat. Because my mom had it forced down hers. Her her parents were religious fundamentalists and my father's from Syria where, you know, he he was an immigrant, but he couldn't sort of approximate the blend of Christianity and nomadic people beliefs that were, you know, in his small village from where he's from. So um I was left kind of with nothing. I got to search and seek and think for myself. And 
when I started studying science and it led me to these different methods of science, it eventually led me to anthroposophy, which was generated by this guy, Rudolf Steiner, um, who is, you know, another person who's a bit maligned on the left, um, mostly through misunderstanding and propaganda from one leftist who's a sort of debunked scholar. Um, and, you know, people have popularized his work sort of unwittingly on the left. But I, th- but that approach is basically, it's <laughs> a long-winded answer, just to say, like, if we look at our experience, um, if we look at our experience scientifically, like, if we actually pay deep attention to our experience and phenomenology, um, things start getting really fucking weird. Um, your life starts to become very strange. And the idea that, like, there's a material world made out of objects, matter, and motion starts to fall away and give way to the truth that the world is, you know, uh, made up of evolving states of consciousness, um, not things. And that material, uh, the, the, the nature of material emerges from spirit and consciousness, um, not vice versa. Um, and in fact, there's not really not like, good evidence of the vice versa thing. And whenever people come up with it, they're like, it's emergence, you know, like it's like, you know, a genie comes out of matter and there's thought, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So I think um, all of that is, uh, <laughs> all of that's the answer to your question <laughs> from, the, from the beginning, at least we, we can go deeper down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I kind of got into Rudolf Steiner trying to prepare for this. And it was, I, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on just like, the official website for this guy if it's a little bit heady um mm. for the for a newbie but like there's some really <laughs> interesting little nuggets here that i i kind of wanted you to elaborate on like i mean the the notion of like a cosmic memory mm. you know and like this notion of like this ancient wisdom that's passed down through successive incarnations of like existence i guess um on the official website for website for steiner it says evolution because like he believes in evolution but he also believes that like we are there's also like knowledge that's like you know like that we can tap into that's not all from our own you know from our own like evolutionary uh, processes in terms of biologically speaking and he says Evolution allows us to approach multiple goals over many eons. We've been guided from simplicity towards complexity, from unconsciousness toward consciousness, from Mm. passivity toward activity, from necessity toward freedom. Having received the gift of wisdom, our task is now to internalize that wisdom and transform it into active love. Mm Yeah, what a great one. It, it ties into another quote of his, which is one of my favorite, which is, uh, love is the only passion which must not be discarded in the pursuit of truth. Ooh. Because you actually can't have truth if, you, if you're if you not led to a place of, of love, which is the sort of eternal source of, of everything. Um, and that can be talked about in metaphysical ways, in personal ways, in um, in all sorts of ways. But I would say, you know, this idea of... Um, that we that we take in <laughs> that we that that there's an evolution of consciousness um and that that evolution of consciousness works out in individuals cultures um everything in different ways and that none is higher or lower than the other everybody's sort of undergoing a different evolution of consciousness um i think that that's a pretty impressive and interesting uh way to look at things but i I want to take up 
this as sort of a, maybe a, a political point um, and a personal point as well, which is he says, you know, man, I mean, he, he meant the human being when he used the word man, um, as many people did at that time. Um, man is not free, but on the way to becoming free. And I think that that sums up the, uh, the free will determinism debate. I think it solves it pretty easily. Um, just in this one little passage, which is that we constantly have forces which are working upon us, um, to make us unfree. In fact, the ground, the grounding of life is unfreedom. Um, that all the karmic forces and karmic forces include, um, sociopolitical economic forces that we're born into, whether they're, you know, what we consider good or bad in society, um, are all constantly working on us to live a life that's unthinking. But every once in a while, we can have free thinking, free feeling, or free action. And those are sort of like the seal popping its head out of the surface of the water. Oh, there you are. You're in a new environment now. And then you go back down below the surface again. It's very hard to be free. But the more we do it, the more available that freedom is to us. So it's a constant act of becoming free in our lives. And it's not easy to attain. It's quite difficult. And a lot of these ideas, by the way, that I'm talking about with Rudolf Steiner or whatever, like I don't call myself an anthroposophist, which is a system I'm, I'm not. I, I found a lot that was interesting and worthwhile in his system, but it's in a lot of other systems as well. But I do think it's clarified mostly for people who have a certain way of thinking um, through, through Rudolf Steiner. Well, I, I've heard of the Waldorf school, like the institution yeah. of that school. And I never understood that that was what it is like that. All of his right. philosophies are actually about like, kind of like this unlearning and deconditioning of what you're talking about and like a more holistic kind of form of education, which is really interesting. Yeah, and biodynamic farms. So if you've ever had biodynamic wine, that comes from him. Community shared agriculture comes from him. Um, Ra Rachel Carson was hugely inspired by him. So the environmental movement in some ways can be tra traced to Rudolf Steiner's work. Um, I think most, one of the most profound and beautiful um, things to come from him are the Camp Hill communities where um, people with uh, disabilities of all sorts, but mostly um, learning intellectual um, disabilities uh, live, you know, as free whole people. Like they're, they're not treated as if there's anything wrong with them, but rather, you know, and this, this goes back to the forties when a Jewish man named Carl Koenig um, who studied with Rudolf Steiner created these communities in a response to Hitler uh, deciding to have uh, all people with intellectual disabilities executed at the same time, some of his colleagues were helping uh, Jews escape the Nazis. Um, so there was, I mean, I think there's so many phys like on the ground initiatives created by these spiritual practices. And, you know, some people who follow Rudolf Steiner's teachings are, you know, not great. And some of them are great, but uh, the initiatives are mostly pretty fucking beautiful, you know? And it, 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 is it encouraged through like practices like meditation <laughs> or I guess I like, meant like just the process of um, like becoming free and embracing love. Oh, oh I see. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's done through spiritual exercises mm -hmm. where the idea is that our, our capacities are – we have lots of capacities that are deepened by um, certain types of med meditation and spiritual work. Yeah. How does the occult fit into 
this kind of philosophy because I think that people have a it's kind of funny like people have a misconception about the occult it's either I mean I'm obviously a lot of people are into it and do know a lot about it but there's also this kind of cartoonish tendency to to reflexively be like oh yeah like the occult is like the devil and it's like you know it's either like super hyperbolic like about pedophilic elites eating children or you have the kind of other line of thinking where it's like oh this is all completely made up bullshit that has no basis in reality so talk about how you like how does the occult fit into your philosophical and spiritual practices and what exactly is it like what what even the fuck is the occult how would you yeah. explain that to someone Oh, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, most of when people think about the occult, they do what you're saying, which is they, they think of sort of aspects of it. You know, I mean, yes, you can say that tarot cards are occult or, you know, women who are naked or men who are wearing robes, you know, or like whatever, spirit cooking, whatever the fuck <laughs> aspects you want to say are occultism. Um, I think that most of those are just sort of accoutrement to the, you know, real spirit um of occultism which is basically that um again this the, what i sort of what i said before that you know that the world is not made out of stuff um that actually there's a spirit that sort of runs through things and that looking at that yields a, a picture of reality that's why you know when people famously say like you know, once famously said, like, well, the occult just means hidden, meaning that there's a hidden kind of reality, but it's a hidden reality that's in plain sight. You know, and if you think about your thoughts, about your experiences from day to day, about how you live, what it's like to be a human being, things get really weird. I mean, even if I just, you know, tell people who are listening, like, you can't see your own face, and yet you walk around all the time as if you can see your own face. <laughs> And yet the entire world is composing a vision of you that's different, uh, that's different than the one you have of yourself. And you can never have the one that the other people have. Like, that's weird, you know, or, I mean, I d I've done some stuff with our mutual friend, Duncan Trussell, like on his show, we ran through a few sort of occult exercises, not the most recent time I was on where I talked about my book a lot, but the, but the time before that. And he was like, man, you're like a living psychedelic substance, you know, like <laughs> if you just sort of look into your, your experience, you know, you start understanding and feeling how fucking weird things are. And that means that we take a lot for granted that might not be true. And that's, that's occultism. It's just, we're not going to take, take the apparent, you know, as, as true. Um, I, I mean, I think that that's the best way for me to explain it in a way that people can sort of get, you know, relating to. And so like stuff like tarot cards or crystal balls are sort of grasping attempts to sort of get at that, you know, like, oh, if I use these tarot cards, I'll find out the truth. If I look into this crystal ball, if I do, you know, like Reiki or whatever, like it's all trying to tap into the non-material reality. And sometimes that tapping into is total bullshit. I mean, I'm not, I'm definitely not you know, an advocate for all forms of, you know, occult or spiritual practice, not because I think they're bad or morally wrong, um, but for the most part, but because I think they're, you know, they're, they're just as delusional as scientific materialism, consumerism, and capitalism are. I, first of all, I want to hear that Duncan Trussell episode because I want to do those occult practices. But also, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think of like body dysmorphia and like um, just ha just going day to day and just having your thoughts hold you hostage and not being able to get out of your own way. And, and all right. of that kind of fits into what you're talking about, like being able to like get into a different space and and 
tap into that kind of universalism that like you you know it's not just about self-loathing and like <laughs> criticism all the time it's like that's the trap man yeah i mean all body all concepts of having a body are body dysmorphia um so yeah, we'll, right. we can start there it's a, you know it's it's the the whole you know something that's come up and we we don't i'm not just so you know i'm not like hint hinting that we need to pivot to talking about my book um i just want to say <laughs> no no we are next no because sometimes like you know how people do that they're like well actually in my book Hawk Mountain, <laughs> but, I'm, but, but what i'm what i'm trying to do right now is actually just sort of tell you like give you one of the things that keep kept coming up on tour which was people kept asking me about trauma um because of the contents of the book so but what I was saying to most people was like, isn't it interesting that, you know, trauma used to just be related to sort of military PTSD, you know? I mean, at least, you know, sort of in some, a certain point in time, that was the way it was mostly understood. Um, and so now, like, people are reporting trauma for all sorts of things. You know, people are like, you know, that breakup traumatized me or someone touched my ass at the club and it traumatized me. What I would not saying is that those things are not traumatic. I'm not saying that at all. Um, maybe they are traumatic, but it is interesting to look at what has caused the field of trauma to expand and include so many different events. And it goes hand in hand, I think, with our deepening commitment to a materialistic point of view, because materialism itself is traumatizing. And materialism demands that we move away from our spirit, from reality, from who we really are, and into identification with the material world um, and bodies. And so this creates a huge problem for me when I talk to leftists whose politics I 99% align with except for the basic foundation, which is that we need to only work on material conditions. There's some sort of leftist idea that like, if we just get the material conditions right, everything will be okay. But of course we know that's not true. If, if that were true, we could trust rich people. So like, we know <laughs> that people who have all their material conditions right and everything in a row, like are often really troubled and fucked up people and do horrible things to other people and create bad conditions in the world. Um, and so we know that there's something much deeper and more profound than that. And while I think some people might be content at stopping at the psyche, I would say we need to go beyond that into the realm of the spirit. And there's a lot of training offered by people who have done occult work, um, some who have done religious work, but I think the occult work is actually more profound. It reminds me of just spending a lot of time with like indigenous communities, especially recently mm. in Hawaii. And there is this just centering of the spirit of nature and honoring this broader sense, of this deep philosophical understanding that like we are all connected to animals and life and plants and trees. It's like everything is just so interconnected. And it's just it's so lacking with what you're talking about. Like when we just focus on, you know, this huge detachment and disconnect from our natural world. And I think that does encompass the spiritual world as well, because it, it is, it, it's, it's a very big abyss. Um, and unfortunately it, you know, it manifests in a lot of ways when you, when you have no connection to that world at all. And when you're just stuck in kind of this wage slavery or, you know, like articulated in your book, I mean, just the, the trauma <laughs> of mm -hmm. just being in fucking high school, which, I mean, 
it it is not a good time for a lot of people. It it is like kind of I've heard you discuss this as well. It's kind of like an indoctrination into an obedience to authority, mm. mandating this kind of destiny of wage slavery. Like it does not harness your individualism. It doesn't. It puts you into a mold where it's like you have to conform to do a certain thing that is again like totally disconnected from the natural world, the spiritual world that we live in, while stripping all creativity and imagination. School and like, does what does that do to us? Yeah. 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 What does that do to us? Yeah. Well, it's no surprise that you would have then located some of these, you know, ideas that you've been thinking about lately with some of the indigenous people you talked about, because of course the indoctrination in residential schools um, for indigenous people um you know, that was trying to basically destroy, you know, um, controversial figure, but Ward Churchill said, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. That was the the name of one of his books about these schools um, that, you know, was like destroy all the spiritual connectivity um, so someone could become Western, so they could become, you know, colonizer. And I think that like, while obviously indigenous people faced a very specific and face a very specific set of circumstances in these schools, um, we can also look at people who are not indigenous and school, the schooling system and the way it is designed to, you know, lead people into basically, you know, lives of obedience at this point, just technocracy, you know, STEM education, that kind of horse shit, um, which is to work for, you know, corporations that just ruin the world and turn people into, you know, robots working for them. And I, I think it's always been that way. So it was, you know, capitalism, you know, um, technocracy, labor force, factory workers, whatever it is. It was, you know, school is a way to seize someone's destiny and distort it and destroy it. And academia, which is a furthering of that system um, that pretends to deepen people's commitment and connection to the spirit through presenting humanities courses, philosophy courses, um, nevertheless, don't let you talk about sexuality or spirituality. Um, so these things that are primary, beautiful thing, aspects of being human are completely barred. You know, even if you take like a gender studies course, it's like, you know, the post-coloniality of like 19th century women writers in Iowa with syphilis. You know, it's like what, what could be less sexual than talking about things in that kind of theoretical way where you learn about queer theory, but you don't learn anything about sex. Or if you're learning theology in school, you're like, did the crumb, you know, the that the mouse ate at the Last Supper redeemed the mouse's soul? It's like, that. what could lead you Ooh. away from theology and spirituality <laughs> more than these kinds of idiotic, detailed discussions that don't relate to people's real experiences or connection to the spirit or to sex? And so I was thinking a lot about the way that school, you know, when, when I wrote the book, but I think about it all the time anyway, like school is a, a crushing, debilitating system of state, you know, it's a felt, it's an arm of state power. And, you know, um, you know, so people have written about this, you know, many ways in which school is just basically labor exploitation for kids. You know, they're just taught to be exploited laborers by doing homework, um, and coming in and like returning their reports in and, you know, to people who don't give a shit about them, make fun of them in class, put them in these boiler pots of like, you know, social repression and anger and, you know, just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And you'll, you know, and then somehow magically you'll turn into a good person because you played football or some dumb shit. So I think it's like, 
you know, these kinds of structural, <laughs> these kinds of structural things need to be looked at in the ways that they crush people's connection to the spirit. And I think that, you know, so it's uh, like I was started off by saying it's no surprise to me that like you might be thinking about that around indigenous people who have gone quite explicitly through those systems of despiritification um, through these schools. Although for a lot of people, they still managed to hold some sort of kernel or connection, even as they were put through these systems. It's not like it's destroyed all hope or all spirit there, um, but it surely tried. Right. And they do have that ancient wisdom and that broader sense of spirituality that is very inspiring to me. And I'm learning a lot the more that I talk to people who, um, you know, just have a completely different philosophy as the one that I grew up, which was like kind of militant atheism. And I've broken out of that more and more because I, I do feel like, you know, I'm more spiritual than I used to maybe entertain, Connor. Um, but I think that, I mean, the, the, the hardest thing for me about school is just bullying. <laughs> like that, and that's what's so, nerve-wracking about hawk mountain and let's let's get into it because um that is like that's the most fucked up part about throwing kids in this tinderbox you know kids who are maybe developing at a different pace or just on their own life path well the need to conform not only to become a cog in the machine after school but to conform just to who is around you and um, Hawk Mountain is, it's a very, very nail-biting, page-turning, you cannot put it down. It's almost like you turn every page with dread because I'm like so nervous of what's <laughs> going to happen <laughs> next. It's like, you know, half of it's set in high school, half of it's set um, in the future. And I want you to kind of explain a brief synopsis. But first, I just want to say, before we get into it, your tour is over here in the U.S., I'm super sorry I missed the L.A. stop. I was out of state. But it, it is amazing, Connor, to see, especially as someone who has known you out of the context of having like a like a brilliant um, author as my friend, like just someone who was like a totally different role to me as like a philosopher, just a, a funny, creative guy who I never pictured as someone like that. I mean, <laughs> I knew that you were like a writer, but I, I've never read like fiction from you. So... Um, the stellar reviews that Hawk Mountain is getting, these major write-ups in mainstream publications, you either have a very savvy agent or the book is really that fucking good. And let me tell you, the book is really that fucking good. <laughs> and there's a lot of books out there and a lot of them are just trash. You know, like I could say like 99% of books are bad. Um, there's so many and there's so many goddamn books. And like uh, even the people that I know that have written it's a like book. It's that, like uh, that Twilight Zone episode where the guy is like uh, in the vault with all the books and he's like, yes, I could read. But like, oh, they all suck. They're all Actually, horrible. This is what's scary about it. And it's like hard for me to justify reading fiction in general because I don't I always feel like I don't have time like I don't have time to read I need to be learning something like I don't have that much time and but like reading fiction is so crucial for your brain like your creativity yeah. like we were saying just to escape into another world I think is a really beautiful special thing all that being said we're not going to give any spoilers here like you fucking did to me when I was in Ireland um, <laughs> Do you remember but, that? Uh, yeah, you Sorry. fucking, you fucking, the ending. you fucking <laughs> kind of killed kind of. me. Um, but no, it, what it did was actually keep me more on the edge of my seat because I was like, oh my god, like what? When is when is when I know it's gonna happen? Yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like, um, 
But I mean, really, like this emotional journey, I would say through the fragility of human psychology, which is really told through these two characters. And and again, like this disconnection between the brilliance that is told through the story of the author, Connor Habib, and then my friend, Connor Habib. And I was really able to completely detach that. Can you quickly tell our audience a brief synopsis of the book without spoilers? Yeah. Um, yeah, just just lay out like the, yeah. The, so I can give a brief synopsis, but I also want to respond to some of the things yeah, you said. Yeah, yeah, so go for let it. Me, let me let me do the synopsis about first. spoiling okay. the book. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the last page of Hawk Mountain. No. Um, so Hawk Mountain is uh, Hawk Mountain is uh, a story of two uh, two men um, and, who went to high school together. Um, so one is Todd, who was relentlessly bullied by the other, Jack, relentlessly bullied, um, and. The book mostly takes place 15 years after high school graduation when, you know, they haven't seen each other the whole time. Todd is sitting on a beach and his uh, son, Anthony, who's about to be seven years old, is playing in the water. And Todd sees someone coming up the beach. You know, it's a novel. So, you know, it's, that's never good when someone else is entering the scene. Um, so, the, <laughs> so as he comes closer and closer, he sees that it's Jack. And Jack, for very complicated reasons, says, can I stay with you? And Todd, for very complicated reasons, says yes um, to letting him stay the night. Jack stays and stays and starts developing uh, a very uh, maybe strange relationship with Todd's son. And things just sort of spin out from there until something terrible happens. And uh, that's only about a third of the way in. Then it just gets darker and darker and darker. And uh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess uh, I kind of what I really like is that, you know, for listeners, because I've, I've read the book too, of course, and, and was just like, at the, it was, it's a, such a tense experience. But all nice. the things we've talked about so far in this episode, all of the different dimensions that you have that all have their own serious depth, mm. like none, none of those are really rolled into the book. And like the book and the, this adventure <laughs> truly is just like a totally different dimension. So if you're if those who are new to, to Connor's work and are thinking about oh, yeah. reading the book, like everything we've talked about up until this point is like not exactly like what the book is about. So it's, yeah, really it's so fun. funny because people have asked me that, Mike. Like they're like, where's this? Where's that? And I'm like, it's in there, but it's in there in a sideways manner. Mm-hmm, like right. there's some occultism stuff that I learned about, you know, human consciousness and development in the part where, you know, there's a, a small part, a very small part that's told from the consciousness of uh, from the from the viewpoint of the seven year old boy. And maybe I'll read just a short part from that in a little bit. Um but like I, understanding human consciousness and how that works and how that played in was really helpful to me. You know, um, there's some sexuality stuff for sure, for sure. This book has so much about repression, but like, you're right. It's not all on the surface. Like not, this isn't a book of ideas in a standard sense. You know what I mean? It's just a fucking, it's a story. Just you a know? wild and, ride. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, but I wanted to say something to you be- like before we move on, yeah. guys, which says like, you know, you were saying I have trouble justifying reading fiction, and I I was thinking so much about before this tour, like what is this thing that I'm going to do? Like I wrote a novel, and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to audiences, and like all, all the events were full, which was like mind blowing. Like I did great events with Will Maneker from Chapel Trap House, um, Baby Daddy from Scissor Sisters, <laughs> like people who were just not you know, all in the realm of fiction because I wanted to like have broad audiences come to these events. And 
talk about fiction. And I was like, so what is this and how does it fit in? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, fuck, this is exactly what's needed right now, which is someone to stand up for the cultural realm. So I, I'm, I will artificially separate these things in a way that maybe they're not totally separated, but the, the cultural realm, which is about the individual, it's arts, it's, it's uh, sexuality, spirituality, um, you know, uh, the political realm is something else. The political realm is about rights and navigating the interactions between two or more people. And the economic realm is the all. It's about everybody and all the resources and all the, you know, flows and transactions. And I was thinking, you know, the cultural realm, especially the arts, have been completely absorbed almost to the point of being digested by the political and economic realm, especially in the past five years, where everybody talks about art in political terms and its political function, political representation. What does it do that expresses politics in the right way or the wrong way? Um, and even to the point where, you know, it's like there was almost a demand that you make political art. And Every political discussion that I hear, even some of the very good ones, I, f- I feel like people, um, they, it's like, it's like individual human beings no longer exist. Like art mm-hmm. and spirituality and sexuality, like they, they no longer exist. Like they all have to be subsumed to the political realms. Like when people say that buzz phrase, everything is political. What I hear is like, we're all subjects of the state and there's no escape. And I think that's a really bad, I think that's really bad news, even even though, of course, saying, you know, well, I don't care about politics. That's even worse. But like, so so I understand the defensiveness of that line. But I thought I need to go out and actually strengthen the cultural sphere because it's only through strengthening culture that we can actually erode the power of the political sphere in our lives and the power of the economic sphere in our lives. When we have meaning in our lives, when we have things that we can access that have true meaning and depth and stir us emotionally and make us think new thoughts, make us have new feelings, you know, then like we have lives to live that feel like they're worth living, um, that feel like we don't have to just fill it in with like sort of meaningless, vacuous, um, you know, instantaneous pleasure that, you know, exists in the space between going to work and, you know, falling asleep. And I think that's what I tried to do on the book tour was just sort of stand up and be like, this matters, you know, a books, reading fiction matters, going to mm-hmm. good movies. Like, and, you know, I take this line that Susan Sontag said, seriously, and Susan Sontag is a very political person, as, as am I. But she was like, you know, reading novels and going to good films and going to the ballet and listening to music, that is a noble pursuit. And it should be accorded the same respect as any other pursuit, you know, um, Because, you know, we all pretend we're fighting for like a post-work, post-capitalism world. But what the fuck are we going to do with ourselves if we've done no (laughs) cultural training or education before then? You know, like we're just going to funnel it into like building some other horrible capitalist, you know, or feudalist society where we're all workers again. So It's uh, it's such a good point, Connor. I mean, it's such a good point and it makes you a well-rounded person and it's so important to have uh, different facets and interesting things that you can pursue that especially if you do focus on a lot of political work primarily like it's okay and i do and i do kind of tend to have a lot of guilt about like not doing enough political art you know and it's like it's okay to just do art that's just an expression of whatever my creative process 
guides me through. Like it, it doesn't have to be some big profound indictment on the system or whatever. It's like, that's okay. That's even like better for me psychologically. And so, um, yeah, it's like, it, it, it is okay to do that. And, um, it's good to do that, especially when you do dedicate so much of your time to this kind of heavy stuff, Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks. And I, I think it's, you know, of all my problems I have with, with Adorno, the sort of critical theorist, you know, he did say this one thing where he's like, he's talking about like post-capitalism. He's like, but what are people going to do with their free time? <laughs> you know? And like, he wasn't worried that, you know, he wasn't saying we shouldn't have free time, but he's like, fuck, like you're fucked. As soon as you get free time, you're fucked. And anybody who's listened to this, pay attention to how you feel when you have free time. You right. probably feel like shit because you don't know what to do with it. You don't know what to do with freedom, you know? <laughs> no, seriously, it's like anxiety because of just the way that we <laughs> totally. live, you know? Totally. It's, well, it's like guilt and anxiety. Play Elden Ring. That's how you can do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Just fast forward. Um, it was actually... Uh, I do. I actually do recommend people yeah. do that with their free time. But anyway, that's another story or another episode or another podcast, probably. Um, but uh, you know, it. Um, I, I kind of before we get into actually like the themes of the book, I did want to ask about like your, like how this happened because like you're doing like a lot of different things. Like you have this podcast, which is great. You have your academic studies, like all these things. And then like when we were visiting you, you were like, oh yeah, I also just like wrote a novel and it's like getting published by like a big publisher. <laughs> and we're like, wait, what? Like when, so like, I, like I think writing a novel and, and just a, just a word on like the, um the, you know, fiction, like your, your point about like culture and how that's important and everything. Like read, I think people who are obviously this isn't our entire audience, but like there is a, a portion of our audience that are people who are political activists and, and want to develop as that develop their seriousness and their knowledge and stuff like that. And so there's a sense of, Oh, if I have time to read, I need to be reading stuff that like develops me politically and stuff like that. But I've, I, I, I was in that vein for many, many years as well. Uh, like I just need to study all the time and, and whether it's, it's politics or whatever field that, that you're into, but like reading fiction just makes you better at, at everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it develops yeah. your vocabulary, your communication skills, mm-hmm. your creativity, your imagination, your mood is improved by it. And it just, there's so much that you get out of just it. And it, and like the search for like, I got to read a book, even if it's fiction, it's got to be something political and, and whatever, which there is great. You know, people like, you know, Ursula Le Guin and, and uh, Octavia e. Butler, like people who are like very powerful, really good political fiction writers. But what I enjoyed about reading your book is just like it was just fucking awesome. I mean, it almost like in a way it reminds me of like, uh, I don't know if this is a good comparison, but like Jordan Peele as a writer and like he comes out with mm-hmm. Get Out. It's a highly politically charged great social commentary, amazing film. And then his next film comes out and we just saw Nope last night, actually. Mm-hmm. And they're just not political at all. I mean, there's the inherent political nature of like black writers, black protagonists, things like that. Mm-hmm. But everyone is like, oh, we're, and like when Us came out, everyone's like, oh, where's the politics? And it's just like, no, like developing culture is its own important, like separate thing. Um, but anyway, so I just think that, you know, reading fiction is, is just so, it, you, I get so much out of it. And it really was just a couple years ago and I realized I needed to like get get back into that. But it brings me back to what I was asking you because you one of the things that you told us when you were there is like you were going through a period where you were trying to read like a book a day. Um, and so like I'm wondering – so when I saw that you wrote a book, I was like, well, I, maybe it's easier to write a book when you're also reading a book a day and you're just like – and I just feel like – so was that part of your – like how did you do this? And like how long did it take you? Like were you trying to write other books and this is the one that hit or was this really your first fully developed novel? Like 
talk about how did this all how this all happened because it's it's yeah, kind of yeah. wild. <laughs> um, yeah, that was funny when I told you guys. You were like, "What?" <laughs> you always hear Abby say, "What?" Um, uh, yeah, I. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the fiction has actually always been the real thing. Like that's been the thing I've wanted to do since I was a kid. I wrote. I started writing a novel, not this one, but I started writing a novel when I was eight years old because I was reading this like Dungeons and Dragons, like fantasy book. I think it was called Artifact of Evil. And it was by the guy, Gary Gygax, who like created Dungeons and Dragons. And it started in a battle scene. And I was like, holy shit, you can start a book in the middle of the action. (laughs) I like got on my mom's like Apple IIc computer and started writing this book. Um, And then I wrote a bunch of other books. Um, that, you know, obviously I got like 10 or 15 pages or whatever. One of them, by the way, I was just looking at it today is called The Hunted. My my brother sent me the photo, like a photo of the cover I drew, which is about, tell me if this sounds familiar, blue cat humanoids from another planet that dress themselves in the skins of human and are humans and are undergoing vi- environmental degradation. <laughs> and I drew a picture of the blue cat thing and it's like it looks exactly like the avatar <laughs> and i showed it to my friend and he was like you need to sue james cameron i was like i don't think he found out about the hunted you know pages one through ten on my you know dot matrix apple tc printer but it's like fucking weird how stuff like that happens but anyway i digress the point being i would make covers um two for my books and i would draw them and i would because i was <laughs> obsessed with reading i would write like fake blurbs from authors I loved on the back. (laughs) And one of the authors that I wrote always on the back was Clive Barker. And now like, yeah, like I totally secreted it when I was a kid or like sent a message back in time to myself. It's completely crazy. Cause I didn't like a lot of people on the back who have blurbed it, not the reviewers, obviously in magazines. Like I don't, I don't know the person who wrote the New York times thing or the, or the Kirkus review or whatever, but like the people who blurbed it, I know a lot of them. Although I said, if you if you don't like the book, please don't blurb it because I hate when people do that. Um, but I didn't know Clive Barker really. Like we'd exchanged like two emails or something, and like he sent me this blurb, which is short, but there's a very long one. It's like a two paragraph blurb that is just like glowing. And I mean, I was like weeping. You know, it's mm-hmm. like so huge. Anyway, kids, huge. secret secret ear blurbs. Um, but I um, <laughs> but I so I've always wanted to write fiction. Is the point of all that I wrote Hawk mountain as a short story about 15 years ago. And for a writing workshop, when I was going to UMass for my MFA and everybody hated it. Someone in class said, you disgust me. Was it pornographic? <laughs> like what, what do you mean? Everyone, how could everyone hate it? Oh, they hated it. Well, it wasn't good then, but yeah. they also like, <laughs> they also just like thought it was, you know, like gruesome and, and right. gross. And I also, it was very melodramatic because that's where this story came from. I was really into melodrama, like um, Patricia Highsmith, Rainer Werner ha- Fassbender movies, like old sort of like 50s kind of romance movies. And I, I like, I sort of wrote it kind of in that style. Um, the professor was like, well, I don't read this sort of thing, so I have no comment. And I was like, what the fuck is no your comment? problem? You're paying for that MFA. You better get a fucking comment. Yeah, yeah right. So, but then I, um, <laughs> then I just thought about it for 15 years. Um, I wrote it as a screenplay after I moved to L.A. Because you know how it is mm-hmm. when you move to L.A. It's like 
you could be like chewing bubble yum and you're like, oh my God, like this would make a great movie. You know, <laughs> you like write a screenplay <laughs> about the, your fucking chewing gum, you know, like the most boring mundane experiences, great reality TV show. So I wrote it. It didn't work at all. Um, and I didn't even really try to do anything with it. Um, I just wrote it, but then I realized like, oh shit, I have every scene mapped out. So, cause you have like interior, exterior, like day, night. And um, then I wrote it as a novel in like six months and this is it. I mean, I added a few scenes after I sold it, but um, I sold it right before the pandemic um, began before lockdowns began, I should say. And, um, and yeah, I sold it in two, two book deals, you know, one in the U S and one in uh, Ireland and UK. And it was just like, it was very fast after I started writing it and this is it. I mean, it just kicked around for a really, really long time in my head, but I didn't do anything with it. I mean, it must've been Um, crazy to see how fast it got notoriety picked up and immediately like, this is amazing. And like getting, you know, getting that huge blurb from Clive Barker just must've been like the icy cake. It's like, okay, this is like validating. Think about beginning of lockdown. That wasn't that long ago. And then all of a sudden, and now you're on the book tour. You know what I mean? Right. 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 Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a good point. Like, I don't really think about that, but it was because it feels like forever, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, cause you write it and you want it to come out right after you sell it, <laughs> but it takes a few years. And so, and you also have to do some edits, copywriting, you know, I read the audio book, like all of that. And then it's just, so it's just this big, long process, but, um, but you're right. It's not very long, you know? Well, it's great because it's timeless. Um, and I, let's get into some of the themes that it explores. And thank you to everyone who's on the line waiting to talk to Connor. We are going to get to your calls in just a few minutes. I just want to um, talk about the book a little bit more, of course. As I read through it, I love that, I guess, okay, so you obviously sympathize with Todd, right? Because he's the protagonist. He's the victim of this horrific childhood bullying by antagonist Jack. But A big part of the story to me was about the duality of human nature, because all of us do have a little bit of Todd and a little bit of Jack inside of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so basically just to say, you know, I mentioned before that Jack bullies Todd and then they meet later and, you know, there's sort of a shift in the way they interact and people's sympathies, you know, they've reported their sympathies bounce back and forth between Todd and Jack as they read the book. And I really wanted that because we're all terrible to each other and we're all also victims of each other's terrible behavior. And I think like, you know, especially when we're young um, and maybe as we get older, we can do some inner work and actually be kind people. I mean, I was a fucking asshole, like a terrible, terrible jerk, you know, until like maybe a week ago. No, <laughs> like, like, but I just, you know, like it's been a long time, you know, I mean, even anybody remembers like early Twitter me, like I was just a fucking like, let it loose. You know what I mean? Like it took a long time for me to do a lot of inner development to be, start being like kinder to other people. And I think like, um, the point there being that this whole idea of like the uncorrupted, purely innocent person and the oppressor, like it's just not getting us anywhere. It's not good. So I want to make sure that nobody in this book was let off the hook and also nobody was left unforgiven. And to kind of drive this point home, I want you to read a small excerpt from the book, which is a short essay that Jack wrote. Um, that Todd really related to and, in fact, remembers a passage of later on, which is which kind of takes Jack, you know, aback. He's just like, oh, my God, how the fuck do you remember that? But I thought it humanized Jack in a really important way because it showed how the depth 
to him. Give us the context of this essay, and then can you read it for us, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to just actually read. It's only, it's oh, just yeah. like a page and a half, yeah, like yeah, the whole section. It. So all the chapters in my book are very short because that's how I like chapters um, in books. Um, so uh, basically, at this point, Jack is, you know, um, so there are flashback scenes from when they're in high school um, for some of the book, not all of it. Um, and like Jack has already really bullied Todd, threatened to beat the shit out of him in front of a lot of people, um, pulled his friend Hannah Grace away from him. And Todd is just like, and Todd has done nothing. Like Jack's a new student in the school. He's come from Maine um, to this other New England school. It seems like maybe there's trouble at home for Jack, but you don't quite know anything about it yet. And um, so then, you know, Todd sitting in class, always kind of afraid of Jack. And then uh, Jack gets up and reads an essay and he reads it. This is actually how he got admitted into the school that Todd uh, goes to because it's a a private school or at least a a semi-private school. Um, Jack, Mrs. Call says, are you ready now? Jack says, what else? Mrs. Call says, and a few people giggle, but not Todd. Jack stands and goes to the front of the room, and Mrs. Call hands him a sheet of paper. In Alhashi, Jack begins, but Mrs. Call cuts him off. Hold on, hold on. I want everyone to close their eyes. Go ahead. The rest of them close their eyes. Todd puts his hands over his eyes, too. Okay, and I want you all to imagine what Jack is reading, to envision it. And Jack... Make sure you read slowly, okay? This is your award-winning essay. Show it respect. Todd imagines Jack nodding to this. Then Jack's voice, calm, calming. In Alhashi, there's wind from the coast that never stops. It just keeps coming at you. It hits the houses and the cars and your hair. It knocks branches off the trees. And when it rains, it makes the rain fall hard against the roofs. Seabirds live in that wind. I get picked up by it. Like my mom, he takes a breath. Like my mom used to pick me up before sleep and carry me up the stairs higher and higher until I disappear. Since they're white birds and the sky is white, my dog Badger is white too, and he likes to run into the high grass, and I have to go find him. It's quiet, but I always know where he is. When you walk through the high grass, frogs jump away from your steps. No one knows me in the high grass. Todd raises his head slowly and looks. Everyone else has their eyes closed now, even Mrs. Call. Everyone but him and Jack, who is looking at his essay. Like how no one will know me when I leave Alhashi and move to a new town. Dad decided on it for a new job now that Mom's not around. We're migrating like the seabirds do when it gets cold. That's the time when they don't just disappear into the sky. They leave. And here, Jack pauses Just for a minute, he looks and sees Todd's eyes are open, that Todd is holding the expression of someone who is moved, trying to wrestle with a new feeling. He looks into Todd's eyes. Without looking down at his paper, he says the rest by heart. Whatever tracks you leave in the mud or the sand, the wind smooths them over, bit by bit. Soon, no one knows where you've been or even that you are alive at all. That's what Maine is like. It carries you so you can sleep. There's a second when everyone opens their eyes again and no one knows what to do. And then that second is over and everybody starts clapping. The kids who would never clap at anything like this at all clap. They recognize something in it. Mrs. Call claps and Jack looks at her and Hannah Grace claps and looks at Jack and Todd claps too, but is, but looks away down to the floor 
so that no one will see his face. Yeah. So there's that section. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's really amazing. First of all, there's incredible writing that links these two time periods together. And as mm-hmm. you said, like the screenplay nature coming to life on the pages, like this descriptive nature of the book makes you feel like you're really standing there every single scene that passes mm. by as like a fly on the wall, which is, I, I feel like it's a little bit rare, but it's little gems like this poem. And then I think later on when you, when Todd writes the poem just about his backyard and just mm. your ability to bring something to life like that is just in such a beautiful poetic way, just really makes you shine. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's just the, the way it plays out for me in my head is that, I mean, that's how I'm watching it. I'm just trying to watch it unfold, try to chase after it, you know, as I write it so that it all just comes to life as I sort of go for it. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it's good to keep your characters a step ahead of you. Um, so that, so that it can surprise you as you go so that it can freak you out or upset you the same way a dream does. I mean, when you have a dream, you know, it's weird that you should be surprised by a dream or scared by a dream. I mean, it's your thoughts. And that's when you're writing, you should be scared and surprised and, you know, upset by what your characters, um, the way the way it all unfolds with them. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the capacity of human nature and also the fragility of human nature, you know, our raw vulnerability, our desire to belong, um, Todd's constant attempts to reach out to Jack, right? I mean, he it, it seems like he's like very um mature, like he actually understands that Jack is suffering and that he has incurred his own abuse and stuff like that, but it's just like the constant susceptibility to manipulation even against our most hardwired instincts. And I think all of us really have experienced this in one way or another, even the strongest willed among us can have our psyche just chipped away, chipped away. Or chip away at others, like you said. I mean, everyone has that duality, but it's like the abuser or manipulator where you kind of have this toxic dynamic just becomes so normalized where it's like you you don't even know yourself anymore. And And I think that really says a lot about who we are as a species. Like, on one hand, our minds are brilliantly powerful. On the other hand, they're just so easily held hostage. Yeah. And you know what? It's so interesting that you're saying all this because I was just listening to your episode with um, of, D- of this show with Jody Dean. And I mean, I, I really, I'm very happy for Jody Dean's contribution, but I became a little frustrated with the, with, with some of the things she was saying, because I, in the way that I become frustrated with everybody, it's not sp- specific <laughs> to her, but, um, but uh, like, like so much of the rhetoric was like locked into who was doing what to what other group of people, whether it was the Democrats sort of humiliating people, whether it was the Republicans, you know, being a kind of minority that were, you know, sort of controlling other people in a certain way, whether it's this or that. And I think like, again, this is an instance of when a kind of dynamic of abuse and victim, which is very real. I mean, as someone who's suffered from real abuse, sexual and physical from certain people in my life, I mean, I can say, like, like re- there are real abuse dynamics, but we can get locked into the dynamic so much that we can't find a way to step out of the dynamic altogether so we can start dissolving it. And so I think, 
that's a lot about of what this book ends up being about too is being locked into a dynamic and if you don't observe the dynamic and look at it you know you're in trouble um because a lot of times we become so attached to the forces that plague us in a way that can really mess us up i mean look i mean the entire like israel is a great example you know i think israel is a great example of this where it's like you know there's a kind of uh a rhetoric of past uh violence that sustains future current and future violence um you know there's there's a narrative about the way you know violence needs to be resisted and always defended against that it that incites violence against others and so i think we have uh, a duty to look at these whether it's a bully or or a nation or a you know, a, a certain kind of politic where we have to dissolve the dynamic itself, not just who holds the power in that dynamic. Well, I, you said something in another interview that I've stuck with me as well. That's like feelings are never finished. It's oh, a yeah. continuous strain. And when you feel like, let's say that you were in an abusive situation and that you were able to get out of that dynamic and, and you think that you have closure, you're never, that's just a different form of that feeling. Like, you put a lid on something that is still really raw, probably, and is never really closed off. Like it's always going to be a part of you in one way or another. And to your point about this kind of manipulation, and I, I, I think gaslighting is obviously a big part of this book as well. It's something that's so relevant to anyone navigating through life, not just in their interpersonal mm. relationships mm. and friendships and families, but like on a national stage, like, you know, especially to Americans, like our exceptional role in the world, our need to be an empire, our leaders are looking out for what's best for us. Our media is honest and truthful. I mean, the list goes on and on about just these tactics that you can see on a macro and micro level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of, a lot of that for me, again, has to do with like this bad, uh, and I, I almost hate saying this because leftists really resist this concept, but this bad notion that all we have to do is seize power. Like, fuck no, we have to dis- dissolve power. Like, power is not good, and it doesn't matter who has it. We have to turn away from this concept of power completely because the moment – I mean, it's just a fucking ring. I mean, it's just the <laughs> – Lord of the Rings, like the moment you get it, it starts destroying you. And I mean, I this is, you know, while we might on the left have like no problem saying, oh, well, like the system basically drained Obama of all his like uh, human compassion and turned him into just another cog in the machine of the system. We don't look at how that works in our own lives and the ways in which, you know, if you are trying to win the battle in a sort of standard sense you'll end up reinforcing the battle. And that that's a trick. That's a, you know, there's a trick by the battle and the forces that created itself to keep you in it. And so, I mean, this, again, like that's a very sort of, it's not abstract, but it's, it's not in the book in that way. In the book that plays mm-hmm. out as a story um, that can be felt and really sort of engaged with, but just to sort of extrapolate from that and talk about it in our lives, uh, be careful um, be careful with power because it wants you to want it. When you stare into the abyss long enough, huh. 
becomes you. I mean, it it is, there's like a tendency of like mimicry too, because it's all, you know, right? Like these patterns of abuse that continue on generationally, if you don't actually get to the fundamental root of why they exist or really, you know, address them head on, it's like they continue to mimic and your life and and that reverberates out into the world. And it's like, it, it all comes back for me, like, how did you grow up? What values were instilled in you? Like what, Mm. you know, it's like, it's like, no wonder we're just all so fucked up trying to figure out what the hell we're doing. Right. Mm. And no one has any like true, it's like very little people have like, are able to practice their true intention or have tapped into like actual creativity or things that really make them happy at their core and it's like when you compound that with just having shitty parents and people who just don't have the means maybe and i'm not saying that that's makes you shitty parents but it's like several factors that set a really horrible stage to put you out into the world and then on Mm -hmm. top of that going into school like being institutionalized condition into these different dogmatic lines of thinking being bullied trying to conform to all these like social systems it's just like so many things it it's really hard man and like we want to know why things are fucked up and it's easy to just be like yes capitalism is the driving force of everything and i think it is a lot it is a lot but it's like there is another aspect of this that it's like it's it's everything you know it's everything i don't even know what i'm trying to say but it's just it's a lot man yeah, there's. I mean, there's just so many different directions and currents and all that, and I, I think we do, we would do really well to recognize how many of them are, rather than just trying to boil it down to one, um, and also try to work on and untie those knots within ourselves. You know, as we as we act. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people, condemn you know self work or spiritual development you know, as political action, because they're like, well, you're just going to do that and not do anything else. Well, no, like who, who says, right. like if there's, you know, if there's immediate action to be taken, like you got to do it. And if there's, uh, you know, but you also have to do that self-work. You have to untie all that shit that you're tethered to. And, you know, to Mike's point before about reading fiction, it's like, if you don't develop your imagination, which is what art really helps you do more than anything, you're never going to be able to dream anything bigger than just sort of marginal change. It's why, like, and again, I keep saying, like, I align myself with leftist politics, but I don't agree with leftism in this. So, sorry, like, I guess maybe, like, (laughs) all I'm trying to say by saying this all the time is, like, I like a lot of leftist agendas, tactics, strategies, ideas. But, like, the idea that somehow socialism and, and communism is, like, as radical as it can get when it's actually, like, quite marginally different from capitalism in the sense that like we have infinite amount of options available to us that we <laughs> we can start generating as new sort of systems. I understand why people reach for socialism and Marxism. And I do think that they would be really, really better for a lot of people's material conditions, but as an ideology or as a system, they're not that significantly different. So like, what we can do is develop our imaginations. And the way we do that is by engaging with the cultural realm, the artistic realm, the spiritual realm, the scientific realm, the sexual realm, and that can broaden our ability. And also just to say reading fiction again, relating back to Mike, you know, there's this, there's an essay by the great writer, fiction writer, Zadie Smith, who's I think relating to another fiction writer, Doris Lessing, where she says, you know, like 
when you, when you write fiction, when you read fiction, you have to imagine other people. You have to actually co-create them with the author. They're not real people, so you actually have to do a lot of work imagining, you know, and inhabiting the mind of another. And when you do that, you become more compassionate because you're actually doing the work to inhabit and be with another person. So the cultivation of imagination and compassion and all that is really vital to get out of these structures and power plays and dynamics and abuse and all that kind of stuff that we get locked into. Yeah. You know, it, on that, in that vein of like having culture help us expand our creativity and imagination of what a better future can be like, I, I think in the, the realm of culture in television in film and fiction you know, there is stuff that has real cutting critiques of capitalism and this era that, that we're living in. But I think predominantly, predominantly, it is through a lens of like dystopianism. Like the scenario is like society has collapsed. Everything is shit. There's giant like corporate overlords. It's just like it's very like it's just like an exaggeration of like what we're living in now and imagining like what if everything was like 100 times worse? <laughs> and then there's like imagining a different world like in that lens of like this is what it's how today can be even more fucked up like climate catastrophe is worse like all this all the stuff that we hate is like and, and it's like it's it's uh not very inspiring because it's just it's like just freaks you out about what's coming um and but there was like an era in literature where it was like it, utopianism was like the dominant like utopian sci-fi was still cutting critiques of capitalism and, and all mm. of these things but with in a different and that's like one of my favorite but i mentioned ursula um yeah, Gwyn yeah. before but the dispossessed is what is one of my favorite books because it it takes place like in a like an anarchist utopia on this whole planet where they just everything is everything is like this perfect utopian anarchist future like that everyone is equal in in every way and there's everyone does what they want and all this stuff but but it's analyzing the problems of society from that position and there you still find all these ways to critique the system that we're in and, and all that stuff and and breaking out of even what we think is the most perfect solution to all of this and the most perfect form that human society can take even within that they're going to be finding things that need to be improved or, or different or whatever um so i don't know if you have any uh, it's not a question but i don't know like uh, <laughs> the, the way that would in which we view these problems today in media is through a very like dark dark lens and you don't have which isn't like necessary like you can look at it through yeah. like a more utopian lens i guess yeah, I love I love what you said. It's like it's like the black mirror thing where it's right. like what if what was really happening now was really <laughs> happening tomorrow, you know? It's like it's like it's so it, it's so limited and I think like um you know, that plays also into the kinds of exaggeration um exaggeration like torture media that we look into all the time. And I, I mean some of those books I really like. Um, and certainly my book is a dark, dark, dark book, although it's not a dystopian book. It's actually a dark book that's aimed at exploring and understanding emotional suffering and what we can do mm -hmm. about it. But I do think um, when you know you have someone like Ursula K. Le Guin, she has this book, a very small essay that someone actually gave to me on book tour. My friend um, uh, Nina Person, who's in the, that band, The Cardigan, she's a singer band, she had this book, a little small book called um, – the carry, I think it's called the carrying, gosh, I'm going to forget the name, but the essay is called like the carrying bag theory of fiction or something like that, which in, in which Ursula K. Le Guin says like, or writes, you know, people think that it's the, the, you know, the tool, the first tool is like the, 
the weapon, the thing you bludgeon people with, the bone in, you know, 2001, a space odyssey that the, you know, ape picks up and beats someone to death with. But like, no, it's the, it's the carrying bag. You pick up things and you put them in it and you put them next to other things that they might not have been next to before. You hold them and you see what happens when you pull them out later, you know, and that's how she wanted to write fiction. And I find that really lovely. Like what happens when I bring different strands together and look at what happens? I mean, certainly Arisa K. Le Guin also has a lot of books that were quite dark and violent, Mm. but they still all embodied that kind of spirit, which was, I'm going to bring different threads together and see what happens, not... I'm going to put you on an irreversible trajectory um, that should make you be afraid to wake up tomorrow. You know, <laughs> um, I had so much more to say about your book, but we're, it's running almost yeah. to two hours. And I want yeah. you to read another passage before we open it up for sure. questions and also just share anything else that you want about the book with our audience. Yeah, so um, I'm going to read a very short part of a longer section. Um, so this is part four. There's a, a section that's told from Anthony's point of view, the little boy, and it happens just after his dad hits him for the first time ever. Todd hits him for the first time ever. And um, I just want to read this because a very different part of the book. Um, it's still short, but I'm, I'm just going to read a small part of it. And then as far as anything else, I don't know, we can just... Q&A it and, okay. and people can buy the book <laughs> from book bookshop.org is a great place to buy the book from because um, it supports indie bookstores. Um, okay. He doesn't remember his dad hitting him in his bed the night before. Remember is not the right word because most of his memory. I'm sorry. I have to start one more time because um, I, I fucked up. I forgot to tell you the best part about this section, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is that they're all like it's So when you read the audiobook of your book, if you fuck up a sentence, you have to start again at the beginning of the sentence. Um, not a good idea to do what I did, which was make a whole section that is long, long, single <laughs> sentences. <laughs> like, I didn't think about that when I wrote this book. Um, so these are all sort of long sentences, like basically a series of long sentences. So I'm just going to start again. Okay. He doesn't remember his dad hitting him in his bed the night before. Remember is not the right word because most of his memory has been swallowed like an egg swallowed by a snake. The shape of it is becoming him. So it's more like anger, a feeling where the image would be more like too many currents running through to sort it out. Once he tied his shoelaces into a knot so tight that his dad had to cut them open with scissors. That's a memory, red shoelaces on a shoe off his foot. He had tied the laces again and again, but his dad wasn't proud that he could finally tie his shoes. Then came the scissors and the sky is thickening with dark clouds. There hasn't been a storm in a while, but there's a rumble from near the beach. He plays hide and go seek, but there's no one to hide from since there's no one to play with. But he imagines Jack trying to seek him out, and there's not many places to hide in the backyard except up a tree he's still afraid to climb, or deeper in the woods where he doesn't want to go yet. He crouches behind the legs of the grill, but he knows that's stupid, knows he could be found, except that he won't be since there's no one to find him. There's a memory like this. At the old house empty, the floors wide open, light filling it. Daddy, he said. Dad, dad, let's play hide and go seek. Because he knew that with the broom closet cleaned and the rest of the world in stacks of boxes that he could shuffle into it and hide standing. So daddy closed his eyes and said, one, two. And Anthony said, no peeking. And dad counted three, 
four, and he ran past stacked boxes into the kitchen and opened the door slowly so it wouldn't creak the way it creaked when flung open, and got inside and was contained so that he stood straight up with no way to move in total darkness. He could barely bend his arms, and from the world outside he heard, ready or not, here I come. He couldn't help himself. He laughed a little, because he would never be found in this dark, thin place. There are footsteps. There was his dad's voice saying, I'm going to find you, saying, are you under the table, saying, are you in the cupboards? There was the sound of cupboards opening, but not the broom closet. That is the memory, the dark place with his father outside, and neither of them could see each other. He doesn't remember that his father couldn't find him, never thought to check the broom closet. He doesn't know that there was and would always be one black rectangle of negative space that never enters anyone's mind, and that this time it was the broom closet empty in the house that he stood in, and there's no memory that he stood there for 20 minutes in pitch dark, unsure of what to do, until his father called out frantically, Anthony, where are you? Anthony, come out right now. Anthony, Anthony. Anthony, he doesn't remember being sure that he would be found and at the same time sure that he wouldn't be found because memory isn't really like a snake swallowing an egg. It's like a leaf unraveling its surface to the sun for the first time. Dang. Right. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> amazing. I'm so, uh, I'm so glad you read that part because reading the the essay earlier it's like it, it almost in a way gives the wrong impression because the essay is so like just beautiful and poetic and then like the book <laughs> is just mostly like tension and like just insanity and like we're yeah, just like yeah. you know yeah yeah this is a this definitely is... a better representation of what people are in store for <laughs> yeah it's really incredible i mean like connor said get it at bookshop.org don't get it on amazon folks obviously support your local bookstore if you can um you know, without further ado, I, I know that we had so much more to say about the book, Mike, but let's open it up for questions because there's so many people who've been patiently waiting. Thank you. Since everybody. the very beginning. Lando, you've been on since minute one almost of the episode. <laughs> Come off mute and tell us where you're calling from. Is John, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from uh, Canada. Um, it, I, I guess uh, so as far as. Um, drug use and addiction go, could it be possible the gay population is more vulnerable to abuse harmful substances like harder drugs in comparison to the general population due to having a history of being alienated or having other potential trauma relating to their sexuality? Um, people, people would become more accepting, but I feel like there could still be some residual, like toxic, contagious behavior stemming from like maybe previous generations, like a, I learned it from a friend who does it. So I did it type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think, right. So like w the consequences of bullying, repression, all that kind of stuff, when you have a different sexuality or maybe gender expression, I mean, one of the things that you see certainly a lot in um, gay communities is um, what's referred to, I think rather euphemistically um, as chemsex. And this is, I mean, the, right. I, I don't mean to criticize the harm reduction model. I think there's a lot to it, but I do think it's a euphemism because I've seen so many people's lives completely destroyed by meth use. And the meth use usually goes, yes. mostly I'm talking about meth, and it goes hand in hand with sexual encounters, right? And the sexual encounters, like, I, I remember, like, having sex with two different guys, like, in successive days. And, like, both of them asked me, I got so sad because both of them were like, man, what are you on? And I was like, I just enjoy sex, you know? So I thought about that for a long time and I was like, fuck, like, 
there's an expectation that actually to abandon yourself to the experience of enjoying sex, like you need a supplement somehow. And that means that there must be some sort of residual anxiety. I mean, I'm not against, you know, people um, having their own freedom when it comes to drugs, but meth really does not allow you very much freedom. I mean, when it comes down to it, like it, it you know, you, you, you get to access it and then, you know, the unfreedom steps in really quickly for people. And I think that there is like a lot of residual harm around sexual repression that people experience as dissipating when they do math, but then the math just represses all the other aspects of their personality. <laughs> so I think, I think that there's lots, you know, to be said there. That's where my mind goes first. I mean, I can't really, you know, answer as a broad scope, like public health person, but that, you know, that's what I think of right away. Thank you, John, for your call. We've moved on now to Violet. Violet. Hey, John just joined the queue again. If we want to, Oh, sorry, my bad. Uh, Violet, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Violet, you're on mute. <laughs> you're turning violet. Hey. Um, hey. Hi. I'm calling from Austin. Um, just wanted to say that uh, the passages that you read were uh, really powerful. And um, I'm probably going to go uh, get this book now. But <laughs> I just have um, a couple points that I wanted to maybe push back on a little bit if that's okay i didn't know if this was a q a or like a it's a q a and uh and whatever whatever you want open <laughs> lines that's what it is okay so like in the beginning of the call-in which is why i kind of hopped on the queue so quick um there was a, a character characterization of folks that have you know, issues with or concerns about the sex trade as being puritanical and repressed. And um, as someone that is, yes, a communist (laughs) and a proletarian feminist, I believe in sex trade abolition, but I also don't believe in the criminalization of sex work I don't believe in the stigmatization of sex workers. I, um, but I also think that if we're going to have like a genuine discussion about the, the, the nature of the trade, which doesn't include porn, um, that we have to be like honest about the realities of, of it. And uh, I forget who said, I just wrote this down in my notes, that we have to inhabit and become another person to cultivate compassion. And uh, talking about, like, the nature of duality, the duality of all things. Um, So obviously there are people that are very happy in sex work, and it if that's you, I am like so happy for you. Like do you, but also the reality is that there's a huge portion of the sex trade that specifically exploits, um, the, the most marginalized in, in the world, in the global South colonized women. And, um, it, it does, 
it can be an extremely traumatizing industry um, for many to to be in, especially when it's coming from a place of survival and not, you know, uh, free will. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. Yeah. Ahead. Uh, no, I, I'm only responding just to make sure that we get to everybody. So, um, th- first of all, it probably takes a little bit of courage to muster up the kind of <laughs> like, well, no, actually, what about this thing? So thank you for, um, bringing it to the table. Um, and I'm sorry to cut you off. It's just to get to everybody. And this is something that I get asked or, or brought to me quite a bit. For, first, I would say, like, one, I want to get rid of this survival sex narrative. Um, it's, it goes for me lockstep in the same narrative as, you know, women only have abortions when they need to, and every abortion is a tragedy, and no woman actually wants to have an abortion. Um, I think that there's a kind of cultural smoothing out um, that's pr- a bit problematic for the way that we construct political rhetoric. I also think that you know, usually people's minds go to like, well, yeah, but what about the people who are exploited? They're not the ones who are underrepresented underrepresented in the overall narrative around sex work. The people that are underrepresented are the vast majority of sex workers um, who I've worked with for, you know, over a, a decade now, um, being one of them and then also doing political organizing work with them um, in, in a trade organization and then also um, as an activist. And, you know, that group is actually more underrepresented than the group that is, uh, you know, quite vocal about, you know, either being an exited sex worker or whatever. I do think that one of the reasons why so many people are uh, traumatized, if they are indeed traumatized by sex work in places where sex work is uh, generally criminalized, one has to do with the criminalization of it um, and has to do with uh also the stigmas around sex, sexual health and sexuality, as well as, uh, you know, just being a, a woman or a worker in certain places. And also, I think, you know, it's important to talk about the ways in which workers are overall traumatized, used and exploited in those places um, and not again, making sex work a case limit because we have uh, issues with how we understand um, sex and sexuality. I do again um, think too, that there's, um, a whole idea of a, that sex work is, you know, the a special a special site of exploitation. But when we stop talking about it that way and start talking about it as work, um, and start talking about the sex aspect of sex work as well, we have a real chance of redeeming the conversation and helping people. Um, and I don't think that we really have the ability to help until we do that. And and finally, just as to say, you know, um, when it comes to, uh, wait, actually, I think that was my final point. I there was one other point, but I've sort of <laughs> lost the thread here, but I mean, thank you, Violet. I mean, I, I understand it's like, and the, you know, when, when people bring that kind of thing up, it can turn really super oppositional and I don't, I don't want to turn oppositional with you. You obviously sound like a comrade and someone who's deeply concerned about the well-being of others. So I appreciate it. I do want you to know that this is actually a question that comes up for sex workers um, constantly, some of whom love their job and some of whom hate their job, and no one has to like their job to deserve to have it as the tactic for navigating capitalism, neoliberalism, technocracy, and oppression. Violet. 
we're going to say goodbye unless you have one other thing to say. Um, I actually like I, the conversation was so engaging. I had like a, a whole bunch of um, thoughts, but just to let other people get a chance to uh, speak, I'll, I'll end there. And thank you for um, engaging the subject. I think um, I still disagree to some extent with some of your points and that's okay and like we can still it doesn't have to be like an it can like an oppositional type of thing um we can have like mutual respect for each other while having like differing opinions um so best of luck with your book thank you thanks violet i really appreciate your call of course appreciate your call we got tyler on the line and if anyone else wants to get on the line you still got some time too, so hop on the queue. Call, call in. in. There you are. Uh-huh. Where are you calling oh from? God. It's hard, isn't it? The mute button thing is hard. And actually, just so listeners know, I had a big meeting with like the head of product at Colin because <laughs> they wanted to know like what our user experience was. And I was like, the number one thing is the fucking mute. Everyone's muted automatically. Why is that? And he's like, it's a big debate here at Colin, whether or not you should be automatically muted or not. It's like the well, debate needs to end. And uh, anyways, Colin, hey, <laughs> what's I, up? I mean, Where are you calling if, from? If, uh, uh, Vancouver, Canada, and uh, I mean, if the if the powers that be at uh, uh, Colin are listening, then uh, I will uh, definitely second that motion. To change Did you find movie. it hard to press the mute button? <laughs> uh, I found it difficult to locate. I mean, I clicked on my icon first, and that navigated me to a different window, which is ultra confusing. Um, so then I had to uh, just you know knuckle down and start looking again. But uh, I did find it, and here we are. Um, yeah, uh, Connor, um, congratulations on your book. Um, that's really cool. Um, I had a kind of a sort of like a contrarian sort of, you know, thing that well, not really contrarian, but like just like it was a, 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 like an oddball observation and, and comment that, that may not, you know, usually be heard. And it's sort of like on the side of, of defending men and men's uh, sexual freedom. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, trying to take away from, you know, women or, or this isn't a misogynistic you know, comment, but just, you know, in commenting on the price of sex, sex hookers, um, that, I mean, it's, uh, over the past 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. You know, every once in a while, uh, I'll visit a sex worker. Um, and, uh, you know, after, uh, over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, I mean, the price has gone to like, you know, $300 an hour for anyone who isn't, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I, I won't say that questionable, but, you know, someone who would seem like they were a good match for me personally. Right. Um, and, uh, that's something that, that I think is, is really limiting to, to a lot of guys. It's, it's just another layer of frustration. Um, uh, and, uh, the, the sort of the stigma I feel just to sort of answer my own question or, you know, see if, if you can relate, uh, Connor to that is that the stigma really drives up the price. Um, is that there isn't really, uh, you know, to, to have an explanation of why sex workers charge so much, I think would be um, sort of better for men to hear more often. 
I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean I it, is, it is a it is an oddball question in the sense that I've never been asked that before, and um, <laughs> and I, I think I think some people might sort of reflexively be like, "Fuck that, man!" Like, blah, blah blah. But like, good, like that's your question. So let's let's take it on. Um, I mean, I think look, it's the the <laughs> the reason people in sex work charge so little is the way I'm going to say it is because people are forced to charge so little for everything of value because people are paid for their labor. No one should be paid for their labor. I mean, this this concept of paying people for your labor, you can't actually pay people for their labor. Like, this is a nonsense concept that's dreamt up by, again, the wage-labor relationship of capitalism where where labor is commodified and money is commodified. So we decommodify money and decommodify labor. Then we end up paying people because we trust and care about them. um, And that economy flows in a completely different way to people. I think, you know, the fact of the matter is everybody gets paid way too little for being who they are because they're expected and they're expected to make a living. And there's just like nonsense narrative about scarcity. Um, So, you know, on the one hand, I kind of want to grapple with your question. On the other hand, I'm, you know, I definitely have like the sex worker, yeah. like, fuck off. Like, why are you asking me this question? Like, part of me, I'm just repressing that, except just to make a little joke about it, just yep. to say, like, yeah. there yeah. is that part of me there. But then, <laughs> but, but so what? You're, you're, a, you know, like, I don't need to respond that way. You sound like a nice enough fellow here. But, but then there's the bigger part of me, which is like, okay, well, let's talk about like actually the entire idea of economy here. The entire idea of labor rather than sort of locating some sort of strange class restriction on who can afford sex work because who can afford lots of things and what can sex workers afford I and mean, it's all tied into the same problem which is the way economy functions and also the way the libidinal and sexual um, flows and ways that we handle sex in society works you know and um, so i think i think there's like a lot there and so, you know, it's a provocative question, and I, I appreciate that. And I also think that maybe we need to go a little bigger in trying to answer, you know? I mean, I just want to say one thing that I, I feel like that's very little amount of money for the amount of risk involved, <laughs> but uh, that, that's just me. Um, you know, you can Tyler. Sure. Okay, Tyler, I'm going to have Kitty to bump Kat, you in. Uh, come back. Yeah, sorry, Tyler. Get back in the queue. I'll bump you up. But um, Mariah, you're here. Where are you calling from, Mariah? Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. <laughs> nice. I figured it out. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm calling from uh, Portland, Oregon. Sweet. Oh, hi. We're in the same place. Hi. Yeah. I know people are never in Portland, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I just had like 17 types of craft beer and like a bunch of different food from food trucks. So yeah, we're doing great. <laughs> great. You're 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 doing great. That's that's all. That's all we do here. <laughs> forage for mushrooms. Um, that's another thing, right? Yes, forage for mushrooms, um, and then don't eat them because you're scared of eating them. <laughs> <laughs> One mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All mushrooms are edible once. Yeah, right. Exactly. And every once in a while, it's an into the wild uh, error. Yeah, <laughs> another big risk. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I just had a, like a question, I guess, like maybe it's a little, little tangentially related, but, um, 
just been thinking about it a lot because in my job uh, lately, I've been in a position to schedule people to get mo- the monkeypox vaccine. Whoa. Um, and Sign uh, me up. But, where do I get that? Yeah, I want to get that <laughs> shit too, dude. Yeah, like, but it's really weird because right now the vaccine, like, you're only eligible for the vaccine if you are basically if you're a sex worker or if you have had anonymous sex, like, or, and you have to like self-report these things. Like we, we like, I, it's kind I'm kind of like unclear about exactly how the information has gotten out because we are getting calls from people who have said like, Hey, I heard that I might be eligible for this vaccine. Am I eligible? And then we do the eligibility screening and we have to ask these really awkward questions about like, have, you know, have you had anonymous sex? Like with somebody, you know, that you wouldn't be able to get in touch with if you got sick. Um, have you had sex in like basically an unsanitary environment, like a bathroom or like a bathhouse or, or, you know, like these like really specific like terms um, that maybe like are uh, like more meaningful to a sex worker. Like I don't have that experience. And so I don't know. Um, But yeah, we have to ask these really awkward questions. And basically every single person that I've spoken to, who's gotten uh, to like to get on the list to get a vaccine is like a, a gay man of some eight, like very varying ages, some as young as 18, some as old as like in their sixties. Um, and everyone has been very nice because they all like want the vaccine, but um, it just feels like weird to me like because we know that the vaccine is not, or that the, um, that monkeypox can like anybody can get monkeypox but mm-hmm. it's being messaged by as, as if it's like only, mm-hmm. only gay people can, can get monkeypox or only sex workers can get monkeypox. So I just wondered your, your guys' thoughts about that or what you've heard. Cause like, uh, again, like we, the CDC, like we don't actually really have a whole lot of super clear information about like why this is spreading, how, like where it's spreading, but we're being told like in my job, like we're being told that it is spreading in like get the gay community, you know, those are their words. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can respond to that uh, a little bit because I was literally just looking at um, AIDS map, um, their info on it. So this is one of many sort of public health sites that um, relate themselves strongly to um, gay men, particularly, but um, LGBT people in general. And, you know, it, this is, you know, <laughs> it's a misnomer to say that it's confined to gay communities because what is meant by that is that it's largely seen in gay communities in the U.S. and in uh, certain European countries. But, of course, it exists, you know, um, elsewhere uh, amongst many other people and there seem to be different forms of it. I'm not a public health expert, but I do want just to respond here to the sort of weird bind that is again created by the complete lack of discourse around sex and sexuality which is that you know with something like this there's a there there needs to be a sort of delicate emphasis that where we see it spreading um and spreading 
it's kind of a weird word. I don't even like that word because it seems rather confined even within that subgroup to certain people and that certain people have certain symptoms and so on and so forth, just according to the cursory information that I looked at, that, that, the, that we hold the delicate balance between saying, okay, yes, it's in these communities, but also it could go elsewhere because that's how it works, but because these communities are in some ways sexually um, insular. It's not really happening that way. Um, so why don't we take care of the problem as quickly and as efficiently as we can in community, right? And I think that that um, is a hard balance to hold because you get conservatives being like, look, it's the you know gay disease that's going to spread to us, even though, of course, it's not <laughs> gay communities everywhere. And on the other hand, you get people who are, you know, then like, you know, any of us could get it. Um, any of us could get it, which also isn't what's happening um, in certain areas. So I think that public health officials, and this is not a diss on you, but like public health messaging is often pretty terrible for lots of people for lots of reasons. And that's something that a lot of gay men learned, unfortunately, truly the hard way during the AIDS epidemic. And, um, you know, just after we started getting better medications available to our communities for people who were HIV positive. So I think it's, uh, does anybody really know how to hold that uh, <laughs> balance? Well, um, without causing cultural backlash um, and also without, you know, um, losing the chance to actually contain um, in, in community in a worthwhile way without losing the sort of global picture. That's incredibly difficult to hold that kind of messaging for people because public health has for so long really relied on having direct messages that stimulate certain kinds of behavior through fear um, of presenting out of context messages that lack sort of educational nuance and depth because they don't trust. And I don't know if they're right or not, but they often don't trust people to have nuanced, educated historical responses when it comes to health, but particularly in America where the stakes are so high for getting sick. It's, it just is message different in different countries because healthcare is horrible in the States. Obviously people are completely fucked over if they have to stay at home from work for two weeks to deal with something that, you know, probably clear up and everybody's saying in two to four weeks, probably two. Like, so that has a disastrous effect on people's livelihoods. So they get really scared and rightfully so um, because of, again, capitalism and wage labor relationships and the healthcare crisis in this country. Well, I don't know. It's a lot of stuff to hold all at once. <laughs> so I understand your concern. Um, and uh, again, I think it has to do with a lot of sexual stigma, but also obviously capitalism and healthcare crises in this country. Yeah. I, I mean, wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think I can really formulate like a super intelligible response to, because now I have, I feel like I have like a lot to think about um, because I I've been, I've only been doing this like call center stuff for like a week. Cause we, uh, Oregon, ju- like we just got our first like shipment of vaccines. Um, and so there's still like a lot, uh, a lot that like we are learning or whatever, but I, I completely agree. Like the CDC let a million people die of COVID. Like the CDC is not necessarily like, I don't necessarily, uh, uh, trust the CDC to have, um, 
like good messaging about this. And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I'll end it there, but thank you very much. It's a really, um, really thoughtful response and a lot. Yeah. There, there is a lot to hold and it's, um, I think it's, I think we're all going to have to keep talking about it because it's, it's here, it's happening. Like people are getting sick. Um, and it sucks. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Mariah. Thanks, Mike and Abby. Thank for you sure. So Thanks again for calling Mariah. Tyler, you're back <laughs> on the line. Click that mic unmute button and tell us where you're calling from. Someone, you're trying someone in the on. chat says Colin gives a big ass unmute in the middle of the screen now. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, well, if you updated your app, it does. Oh. Everyone got to update your app. Tyler, update your app. <laughs> yeah. But I guess in, in the defense of Colin, if if you get in the queue and then forget about it and like an out long podcast like ours and then you're automatically unmuted like say one of our first caller who's probably just dropped off and didn't realize right, his phone was still right, on then you all of a sudden yeah. get the uh whatever, you're now live broadcasting whatever conversation they're having right you're like knowledge. eating a fillet of fish <laughs> yeah, right. you're like hey you're on the line Taking a piece. <laughs> you're just uh, like oh shit well like uh, so kev, we, kev we are on the line. we're we can only do a quick comment here because we are pushing to the limit we want connor to enjoy his last night and we want him to get out to some more breweries and taco trucks there in portland so um make it quick if you can um, also tell us where you're calling okay cool hey yeah i was just picking up on a comment that abby made that i kind of reinterpreted as being how people are so overwhelmed by um the choices in our culture and all that sort of stuff. And so it's almost like we've got too many antennae out. And, and my thinking mm-hmm. is that we, we really need to pull a lot of ours in. And to my mind, exposure to uh, indigenous cultures is something that we really must sort of hook in and see how they see the world and how they see life. Because our Western civilization has just turned into chaos, really. There's very little kind of common, ordinary human sense left. I guess that's that's, the guts of what I'm wanting to say. Thanks, Kev, for the call. Connor, any uh, closing thoughts before we pop over to, to Abby's little outro? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll just respond to that. That's the, you know, when I, I many, many, many years ago, I talked to Wilanona LaDuke briefly and, you know, she, you know, I just sort of said like, well, something similar to her. And, you know, there was a little bit of a rebuke, but it was kind of like, yeah, like, you know, a lot of indigenous people aren't doing so great either. <laughs> you know, she was like, so, but we, you know, like, so the the thing is like not going backward in any sort of way, first of all, as if indigenous people are backward, but not going backward in any sort of way, but instead um, getting back on the path we're supposed to be on. That's what she said to me. And I really love that, you know, and that in response to the antenna thing, it's like, there are a lot of us have paths we're supposed to be on, whether it's related to that or not related to, you know, investigating indigenous culture and spirituality or, or, and, and political resistance and material conditions or not. Maybe there are different paths for people, but this again, to me is ultimately a spiritual cultural question. You know, investigate what you are, investigate what the human being is, who, what are you? And let the truth of your actions you know, and the effectiveness of your actions sort of unravel from that, come forward from that, rather than just sort of grasping for whatever is in the zeitgeist. Take a second, 
you know, think, think, reflect on who you are, meditate, contemplate, and, uh, and consider. Yeah. And Connor, um, do you want to close this out with some parting words for your book or should we just, should we just end <laughs> it here with this beautiful last words that you just gave us? Yes, <laughs> No, no pressure. Last word. Do you no want to pressure. Close that out with beauty, or yeah. do you want to talk yeah. about you know something else? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just all I want to say is I'm just so grateful for your friendship, guys, and I'm. It's just fucking good, good stuff and medicine for everybody that gets to listen to you, um, and and gets to be in your presence in the world. So thank you so much for everything you do, and I just love talking to you guys. It's good for my soul, too. I mean, so, and thanks, everybody, for listening and, and hanging out. It, it was really amazing, Connor. As always, you make me think about things differently. And, yeah, again, you're just an incredibly grounding force in my life. Very fun to just hang out with you in general. There's so much more to say about, you know, Ireland and mysticism and all the fun things that we get to talk about when we're we're in person but and we're we'll have just, to hold that off for a different and we're just so happy for time. you man i mean oh my god that, holding that book in my hands is dude, just like it you. felt so good and we're just so proud to know you and we're just so happy that uh, so many more people get to experience what a great person you are through your through your art and Thanks. to have that introduction to you as a person is like such a whole other level, you know, like right. finding the book and then being like, oh, fuck, like, who is this guy? And then finding out who you are, which I knew first. It's like <laughs> most people will experience it in reverse. Yeah. Now, you know what I mean? It's like it's going to be mostly the book world coming <laughs> uh, to you and not uh, knowing anything about you. It's cool. a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful book. It's incredible. It's inspired me to actually just get into fiction. Now I'm just like obsessed with now I need more books that are that good. Like I'm spoiled yeah. now. I'm like, I don't I don't know where to go from here. I guess we'll just Connor. take your recommendation. Yeah, you know, I'm just gonna go and, and also Connor has a Spotify playlist that's kind of scores through the book as well. And everyone check out his podcast against everyone with Connor Habib because <laughs> he interviews tons of authors and intellectuals that you have never heard of that all have something really fascinating to bring to the table. And the conversations are unlike any other podcast out there. So please subscribe to the podcast. Please support Connor's work. Um, if you live in Europe, you might have a chance to still catch him on his next leg of the tour. But I implore you all buy the book Hawk Mountain. You will not be disappointed. Again, if Clive Barker has fucking endorsed it, what the hell are you waiting for, peoples? Bookshop.org. Get the book. Patreon. Read the book. Go to patreon.com. Connor, plug it. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Awesome. Check it out. And write Connor. Um, if you didn't get a chance to call in and participate in this after you read the book, he's very receptive. He's very communicative. And, um, and yeah, start that conversation with him. Tell him how much you love his fucking stuff, man. <laughs> Connor, you're the best. We love you. We hope to see you soon. We're sorry we missed you in L.A. But just a point for us to come back to Ireland. Perfect. All right, my friend. Enjoy your time in the great United States of America. <laughs> and we will see you very soon, my friend. Love, love you lots. Love you, Connor. You have no pain. Anybody, nobody. Thanks again, live audience. Thanks, not live audience. Join us next week sometime for another live show. Be sure to call in. 
taking you out once again with our friend Televangel. 